If you are not getting detailed blood work done, preferably every six months, but at least every year, you may be leaving one of the most valuable biohacks and ways of gaining an insight into what's going on inside of our body and our biology and the health thereof on the table. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out five or so very important markers and where you want to be on your blood test. And I'm going to share with you a way to get your next blood test 25% off. So the first is MCV or mean cell volume. This has to do with the size of our cells. Generally speaking, when we are more inflamed or older, we see the volume of cells go up. An MCV that is pretty healthy would be in the low 80s, like an 83, 84. And when we start getting into the high 90s, 96, 97, that correlates with uh, levels of in, high levels of inflammation in the body and accelerated cellular aging. The second is vitamin D, specifically from sunlight. We can all boost our vitamin D by taking high amounts of supplemental vitamin D, but to really get the the, the, the photonic energy that comes from the sun and all of the mitochondrial and, and um, thermoregulatory benefits thereof, you want to have your vitamin D between 50 and 70 or even higher, but getting it from sunlight rather than supplements. Now, if you can't get there because you're not willing to make the lifestyle changes, you're not in a position to for whatever reason, then you can use a high UVB tanning bed or in some cases supplementation in order to do so. The next is a marker for immune health, and this is your neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. You want that to be about one to one. So if that neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is off, it could be a sign that your immune system is struggling or at least in need of a little bit of help. Um, ALT is when it's elevated, it can be an early warning sign of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So we like to see our ALT under 24. And if it's too much higher than that, there are ways to take care of your liver via milk, thistle, coffee enemas, etc. The last couple, uh, high, sensitiv high sensitivity C-reactive protein or HSCRP. You want that under 0.5. For men, you want testosterone, preferably definitely over 600, but preferably over 800 nanograms per deciliter. You want your free testosterone, which is also uh, important, over 20 PG per ml. And you want your ferritin in that 60 to 80 range. Now, obviously, the testosterone and free testosterone doesn't apply to women, but just about all of the others do. And if you guys have not had blood work done in the past six months, the easiest way for you to do that and save 25% is by going to insidetracker.com forward slash Anthony. We've set up an awesome 25% discount for you. That's at I-N-S-I-D-E-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com forward slash Anthony. I'm a big fan of their ultimate plan that comes with all of the bells and whistles. And what makes Inside Tracker really cool is they give you personalized recommendations for gut health, overall health, injury prevention and recovery, building endurance, lowering stress. And it's super simple. You basically, in a few steps, step one, you purchase your Inside Tracker plan by going to insidetracker.com forward slash Anthony. Uh, you get your blood draw. 
<clears throat> then you get your results and then you get your personalized recommendations and you have it all in one place. You can track your improvements over time. And if at some point in the future you decide you want to work with someone like myself, you'll already have uh, valuable data points that we can apply to give you even more personalized recommendations. So if you guys want to take advantage of that 25% off and get some of those insights into what's going on in your body and biology, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Anthony, select their ultimate plan or any of the offerings at the insidetracker.com forward slash Anthony website and enjoy. This is your life and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are breakfast. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. What's up, biohackers? This is a special edition episode of the Biohacking Secret Show. I sit down with At the Wave and the Ocean, who has emerged in recent years as a spiritual leader and guide on uh, social media, Instagram, built a huge following of 100,000 plus, and he also happens to be my brother. And we dive into a wide variety of topics that I think you guys are going to really enjoy. Some hilarious stories from our childhood and lots of gravy and insights that you guys can apply to improving your lives, your health, physically, mentally, spiritually. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this special edition Brothers episode of the Biohacking Secret Show. Nicholas DiClemente, welcome to the Biohacking Secret Show. Thanks for having me, Anthony. It's good to be here. It's an honor to have you. This has been a long time coming. and it certainly has. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's dive right in. If, well, for the audience, you are my brother. Yes. We're brothers. Yes. <laughs> Five years apart. I'm 39 turning 40. You are 34 turning 35? Eventually turning 35, yeah, in September. In, in September. What's your sign? What's my sign? Um, I am a Virgo sun, Virgo moon, Leo rising. And what does that tell us about you? Uh, you'd probably have to ask my girlfriend to get more details <laughs> about that. Um, but from my understanding, from, from the bit of astrology that I've resonated with, um, my, my Virgo is what I understand more. I actually didn't even know what my rising sign, I had it wrong for a while and recently found out that I wasn't a Libra, I was a uh, Leo rising. So I don't know too much about that. But as far as my Virgo traits, which I seem to resonate with, um, quite detail oriented, you know, quite like spend a lot of time focusing on the small things. Sometimes that's a blessing. Sometimes that's a curse, right? Um, yeah, so attention to detail. I'm very sort of um, clean and organized um, and uh, very caring, I think, is a thing that I, I also noticed that like a lot of Virgos seem to be, um, be very caring, caring about personal relationships and caring about um, sort of the status of the world, if you will. Mm. Yeah. Lovely. We're going to get into that. Okay. I want to, I want to kind of warm up properly first. So neither of us pull a hammy. Sure. <laughs> if, if you were to share the, the Cliff's Notes version of your hero's journey or your origin story, mm. how would you tell it? Gosh, that's a big one, huh? It's a good question. 
Um, my origin story, well, I suppose going back to my birth and my upbringing, I, I, was, I was born into a family of um, a highly privileged family in a lot of areas. We grew up with enough money, more than enough money, I should say, eventually enough that my father um, was able to purchase a second home through all the hard work that he did. I grew up in, let's say, a blue-collar family where my father was a hard worker, um, a harder worker than I've ever been in my life in most senses <laughs> of the word. Um, but yeah, I had two loving parents, a loving brother. You and I got along great. I mean, I can remember our couple of fights. They were so extreme and they were so rare that they stand out in my memory. Um, but that's because they were so rare, right? We, we grew up really loving and really connected to each other and supportive of each other. So I grew up in a family where like there was, there was an abundance of love. There was an abundance of, of material support and financial support. And, and to this day, there's an abundance of those things. Um, and yet, you know, I found myself, I think when I was young, I was known to be, um, the loud one, the excitable one, the fun one, always, always goofing around. I was the class clown for as long as I can remember, um, up until probably halfway through high school. Um, and yeah, I was sort of, um, a very happy child and my hero's journey connects to that in, in the sense that sometime around my teenage years, I became a real angsty teen <laughs> um, and the music that I listened to reflected that, you know, I got really into the emo and the pop punk sort of music and connected to that. And, um, for me, I think I went out of my way as a teenager to experience, I, I think I was really dedicated to experiencing all the things that, um, teenagers can experience that are difficult and heartbreaking, you know? So like, I think I was drawn to, um, feeling heartbreak and feeling unrequited love and like things like that. I think there was something in my story that almost wanted to experience challenge and difficulty. Um, and it's, it's very interesting, you know, when we talk about the hero's journey, my sort of like descent into the underworld, if you will, like probably, um, started sometime around like 16 years or so when I found that not only was I starting to suffer from depression-like symptoms, um, and we started to visit psychologists, psychiatrists, and, and sort of explore what that might be. And, you know, I had some people say, oh, yeah, it looks like depression. Some people say looks like bipolar. Most psychiatrists said, your son's an enigma. <laughs> I would tell my mom, your son's an enigma. And I would say, oh, great, that's helpful. Um, but, yeah, my depression symptoms and looking back, um, physical symptoms of illness both kind of appeared at the same time. And this was years ago before we knew about the connection between, you know, gut health and, and mental illness and things like that. So um, now looking back, it's sort of fascinating to be like, whoa, you know, for me, I remember starting to have headaches really badly. Um, I remember starting to have like gastrointestinal, like reflux type stuff. I remember I used to just like have this constant, like, like I needed to burp. And then all of a sudden I was having stomach issues and stomach pain um, at the same time that I was dealing with kind of depression. And so looking back, it's kind of interesting. And, and I think that's where um, that was sort of the spark. That time in my life, I look back as the initial spark of what brought me to where I am today where I'm working in, in the capacity, like I, my role on this planet is as a healer and that's a self healer first. I've, I've learned a lot about, um, what works for me 
mm-hmm. and healing. And also a lot of the things that work for me happen to be universal. And my, my journey has kind of brought me to a place where I spent a lot of time in physical healing over the years, feeling sick, um, visiting doctors, not getting a lot of success there after visiting many. Um, and I think you can relate to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my, my life path kind of took me down this, this journey of um, learning more about alternative and holistic healing. And um, there were sort of a few different periods in my life where I got really, really sick kind of dove all into alternative healing and holistic healing. And, oh my gosh, I found the answers and started to feel better. And then within a few years or whatever it might be, some things started to resurface. And so um, it's kind of brought me to where I am right now, where I still spend some time in sort of the physical healing spaces. Um, But, you know, since I was probably 13 years old, I read a book by the Dalai Lama and something sparked in me, some spiritual sparked in me. And so for as long as I can remember, I've been on the spiritual path, um, whatever that means, right? <laughs> as if all of us aren't, right? But the idea here is that um, I've sort of eventually brought my sort of heady, logical exploration of spirituality more into embodiment, especially in, let's say, the, the past five, six years of my life. Um, and that's been the, the biggest sort of, that's what brought me to where I am today, where I sort of, I spend some time in the physical spaces, but I'm learning more and more that there's something called spiritual healing. And, and you know, Carl Jung, we, we even mentioned this yesterday, Carl Jung kind of talked about this, that like a lot of our pathologies come from disconnection. Mm-hmm. come from a disconnection to to spirit to self you know and um really being kind of more external focused and having all this sensory input from all these different angles in the world but not really being able to get down to who i am who are my core value what are my core values excuse me and am i living those or not mm-hmm. and sort of my exploration of that is that wow my core value is compassion and yet I'm a bit of an asshole to myself. <laughs> I'm really hard on myself in a lot of ways and, um, you know, all that. So that's sort of like my, my exploration of all this has been um, this long journey of healing and self-discovery that especially in the, in the past few years has come, has come to be sort of like the crux of my existence is reconnecting to spirit. And I don't believe that we're ever disconnected to sp- from spirit. You know, words always fall short. So whenever I hear people talk about like aligning with your higher self or like aligning with spirit, I'm like, you know, spirit is just as much in the urban areas as it is in nature, right? It's just as much in me when I'm depressed as when I'm happy, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But sort of this exploration of connecting more to who I am at every moment, regardless of who I am, you know, and and when I'm angry, when I'm sad, Mm -hmm. that's sacred, Right. Everything is me and everything and and sort of allowing this and learning to embrace my emotions, learning to really um, sort of focus more on on who I am in every any given moment and having full acceptance for that Mm -hmm. is where I am these days. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's also what I teach other people as best as I can. Mm -hmm. And you've you've built a pretty big following on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can just mention your account sure. and what, you know, people might want to follow you for and what they can expect? Yeah. So, um, I'm at the wave and the ocean on Instagram and, um, yeah, I was, you know, I was, I found myself working as a teacher. Um, I was a high school philosophy teacher and history teacher for a number of years. 
And as I left that world, I found myself continuing to be a teacher. And I found that more and more people were coming to me for guidance. I think that's been a theme since I was young that like I, I've been able to hold space for people and I've been able to hold compassion for other people. And again, I've had to learn to do it for myself, which makes me even more effective with other people. Um, but yeah, the wave in the ocean, um, I found myself deciding to bring sort of more of my teachings into the public eye, you know, more and more people are coming to me. And I thought, hey, maybe I could, you know, share this with the world. It actually felt like somehow this is my this is my path. This is my journey. And so in 2018, I think in the beginning of the year, I thought I'm going to start sharing some of the stuff that's helped me in my journey with anxiety and depression and really just connecting to myself. And um, it blew up. It blew up like NSYNC. I don't know how it happened, but, you know, within a year, I had 100,000 um, people in my community on Instagram. And, and it became more and more clear to me that... Um, you know, I dealt with a lot of doubt there and a lot of imposter syndrome type stuff like, oh, this could happen to anybody, blah, blah. But the more I explored that and the more people told me, you know, they, they said, no, that doesn't happen to everybody, right? There's, there's something special about that. People want to be there for a reason. And so I felt that, um, yeah, it was clear to me that I was cultivating this atmosphere of, of positivity, not love and light only, right? Not, not ignoring um, the shadow, which has become a very popular thing in the spiritual new age community, mm -hmm. right? This whole love and light only approach. But I was, <laughs> I was cultivating this community where people felt safe, people, people felt comfortable and people felt inspired and motivated. And I was getting more and more messages from people that um, they were resonating with the message that I was sharing. Mm -hmm. And that's a message of interconnectivity and mm -hmm. self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And through those things, it's about, you know, community. At the end mm -hmm. of the day, it's about how we're all one organism, <laughs> you know, us and Mother Earth and the stone people and the insects and everything, you know, the creepy crawlies. We're all one organism and interdependence is is the key there. So with with my community, that's really the message that I try to spread uh, spread. And that's where I try to stay in this place of interdependence, you know, and learning that. Um, sort of embracing and embodying the fact that we we survive or we struggle in community. Mm -hmm. And um, the greatest healing in my life didn't necessarily happen when I went down a journey of being a self-healer. It started to happen more and more as I built community. And I was a part of community. And I also reached out to other communities and joined them as well. And I realized that, you know, more and more we're discovering this, that, that people heal in community. And there's a lot of healing that needs to be done these days. That doesn't mean that people are sick and they're, they're wrong or they're broken and they need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. what, what healing means to me is that Greek word holos, right? Whole, you know, to mm -hmm. be complete. And so I think more and more of us are finding our way to wholeness, that sort of perpetual journey, that never-ending journey towards wholeness. And, um, and that's what my community is all about. And um, it's, it's pretty awesome, honestly. It's a blessing to be able to connect with like-minded people. And it's also been a blessing to have um, people who disagree with me show up and to have, you know, so-called trolls show up. And, and um, the more I've sort of spent some time dabbling in, in what they call shadow work these past few years, um, the more I've really appreciated the mirror that people that disagree with me provide for myself. Mm -hmm. And they allow me to ask questions of myself that I might otherwise have not have asked. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe a long response for what you were looking for, but yeah, at the wave in the ocean is my community. And um, that's, where, that's where I spend most of my time in terms of doing my healing work. Beautiful. Yeah.
Beautiful. Now, from the perspective of an observer on your journey, I feel like a big turning point and one of the things that you've done so well has been being willing to face some of your shadows and giving yourself permission to express energies and emotions Mm -hmm. that you may have in the past suppressed and could have contributed to some of the stagnation that that you were experiencing. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could speak on that a little bit and share some of the other shifts that you believe have contributed to your growth on this healing journey. Mm, That's a good one too. It kind of goes back to my origin story and what we were talking about. So, you know, I spoke, I spoke on, you know, the love, the support, the material abundance that we experienced growing up. What I didn't speak on is, is things that have come more into my radar in the past few years. And that's, um, we grew up in an emotionally stunted atmosphere. We grew up with two parents who learned from their parents that emotion was not appropriate, essentially. I mean, really, kind of any emotion. And, you know, we could talk about the differences between mom and dad. But, you know, we had we had we have a father who really was never allowed to experience any emotion and grew up in a very, very difficult, very loveless atmosphere from Mm -hmm. what we can tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've also seen our mom. whenever emotion starts to come up, we see how she pushes it right down and goes right to here. To her her head. To her head. So, oh yeah, thank you. So um, that's, that's been my experience as well. Growing up as a person who, you know, I've, I've really discovered that I am what they call a highly sensitive person, an HSP. Um, And, and there were signs of that since I was a baby, that I was a feeler. Um, But again, I grew up in an atmosphere where I wasn't really encouraged to express that. I grew up in a very logical left-brained atmosphere. So you can see already the recipe for disaster, right? You have someone who is a certain way by nature and has had to learn to survive to suppress that, right? And so, yeah, I mean, you said it, that learning learning that, just learning that alone was like, it's funny how, you know, most of the changes are done through, I believe, just consistent day-to-day work, you know, the whole five minutes a day approach to whatever it may be. Practice. Practice, right? But at the same time, there are these, there are these realizations, you know, there are these sort of call it left brain realizations where you kind of put a piece together and another piece together and you go, whoa, what the, whoa, this is a big thing here. This is worth exploring more. And, and you can kind of find out what the practice might look like in that area later. But for me, that was such a huge thing to realize, wow, I've always been a sensitive person. I've always been a feeler. I've always been able to walk into a room and be like, that person's not doing well. Something's wrong here. You know what I mean? There's something stifled here. There's something stifled in this atmosphere. There's something thick, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to sort of identify that, that that's sort of been who I am as, you know, since I was a child. Um, and that the, and the fact that it wasn't really encouraged, right. Mm -hmm. You know, our our parents didn't know what the heck to do with that, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I found myself, I think a lot of my struggles, gosh, I'm going to be honest, all of my struggles were with depression, for Mm -hmm. example, came down to that, came down to being one way and not feeling safe and comfortable to explore that. Mm-hmm. And so bringing safety into myself, you know, what they call self-parenting mm-hmm. has been like the most profound thing I could imagine, you know, like I have nothing against 
my parents. I have no ill feelings for how they raised me because they raised me how they knew. But now it's my time, right? Mm -hmm. Now, like, I'm the only one who's going to be my own savior, right? I don't think Mm -hmm. there's anything outside of myself. Certainly not the government. (laughs) I don't think there's anything outside of myself that has as much interest in, in creating a loving atmosphere within me. Mm-hmm. And so that's been such a powerful thing to recognize, okay, so much of my life, I've just been on the hamster wheel up in my head, that, 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 you know, trying to think my way through things, mm-hmm. trying to get answers for things. Okay, why am I this way? And what is this? And what do I really want in life? You know, really, you know, really stuck in this sort of like um, concreteness, needing mm-hmm. concreteness and sort of embracing um you know, getting out of black or white thinking, so to speak, sort of embracing the fact that life is complex infinitely and I'm infinitely complex um, and allowing myself to experience my emotions mm-hmm. without asking questions about them has been profound. And there are days where I wake up and I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. I have feelings of depression, you know, and and. Some people think, well, you shouldn't say that, you know, as, as a healer or someone works with clients. And I say bullshit. I'm, I want more and more of us to be who we are and to be human. And as far as I know, anyone who's living in integrity and authenticity has ups and downs and emotions mm-hmm. and is affected by the things going on externally and internally. Mm-hmm. So for me, this, this practice of sort of identifying first who I am, identifying how I learned to push that aside in order to survive in different atmospheres Mm -hmm. and sort of bringing myself back down from the head and back into the heart and be like on a day where I'm happy, I'm just going to close my eyes and feel that happiness for a couple minutes in the morning on a day where I'm sad, where I'm tense, whatever. I'm just going to close my eyes and feel that for a few minutes, Mm -hmm. not ask questions about it. You know, it used to be, why am I upset? I shouldn't be upset. (laughs) What do you mean? You shouldn't be upset. And I've learned to see the perfection in whatever is happening, right? We have this mm-hmm. tendency to believe perfection means really, really good. <laughs> when in reality, per- perfection is the isness, right? Things mm-hmm. as they are. So that's been really powerful for me to, to be who I am mm-hmm. and to express it and just sort of like, you know, I don't want to be a dam for the river of my emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, I call the I call the beavers in there and I tell them to break that shit up <laughs> so that the water can flow freely. Mm-hmm. And in the past few years of my life, um, the tears started to flow. All of those tears that I knew for years had to flow. Angry tears, blissful tears, sad tears, all of it. And that's been the greatest thing for me. A couple of years ago, I was like, man, I feel like there's something in me that needs to release. And watching it release this past few years, it's been the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, do any other turning points stand out for you? I mean, we've we've had quite uh, the healing journeys, both of us. Mm. It's taken us to the jungles of Costa Rica, doing plant medicine, um, lots of things. You know, you've done IV vitamin C and ozone and coffee enemas and all sorts of mm. different practices. Um, is there anything spiritual, physical, biohacking related that also stands out as a big turning point Mm. in your journey? Yeah. Um, certainly some of the things you mentioned, you know, so again, this on and off again, sickness that I described, we, you know, we were able to make strides, big strides various times in my life. 
Um, and most recently, maybe I think it was about five, six years ago, I got really sick back when I was living in Egypt. And um, you helped me in all sorts of ways. You you created a customized supplement protocol for me, started to do the coffee enemas. You know, there were a lot of things that were helping. And um, about a year and a half ago, I, I found myself starting to get very sick again. I mean, waking up, like waking up and vomiting, you know, weird stuff like that. Um, it got really difficult again. And so I came home um, to visit my family for for. I was living in Mexico with my girlfriend. I came home to visit my family for Christmas break and also decided to um, to get some tests done. And that's when I found out that I had Lyme disease mm-hmm. and um, started to put the pieces together that like, uh, we don't really know exactly when I got this, but it's starting to seem more likely to me that this is what I've been struggling with for, you know, the past 17 years, maybe, you know, since, since that teenager time that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, that shifts like midway through high school. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, you know, that's what my instinct tells me that mm-hmm. I got Lyme disease somewhere around then. And, and, you know, we could do a whole nother podcast episode on what Lyme disease may or may not be, because mm-hmm. it's one of those, you know, mystery illnesses, if you will. And, and I have plenty of opinion about where it might come from um, and not necessarily tick bites. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that being said, yeah, I, I, some of the most profound things, you know, I spoke a little bit on the, on the emotional level, the spiritual level, um, and I can get into that more. I imagine we're going to go that route anyway because that's where I always go. <laughs> but on a physical level, I'd like to point out that, yeah, for me, dealing with this chronic illness, with Lyme disease specifically, um, I got a lot of benefit from both ozone, intravenous ozone, and eventually feeling like, okay, I feel like I've kind of plateaued there. I'm ready to try something else. Um, And then intravenous vitamin C. Mm -hmm. And those were both things. And, you know, continuing to take some supplements. But really, you know, those, those things helped me a lot on a physical level. But still, it was, for me, it was more of a kickstart. For mm-hmm. me, that was more of a kickstart to sort of like stabilize, if you will, um, and get me to a place where where the most profound things on a physical level would be exercising every day mm-hmm. without without you know any excuses or anything like that. It's a part of my morning where I wake up and I do light exercise. I do a, a short walk and I do yoga. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the yoga is intense, but I'm not, as you can probably see if you're watching video, like I'm not doing deadlifts and everything, you know, but moving my body consistently, mm-hmm. meditating consistently again every day. And I found that my tendency for a while, and I think all of our tendency when, when we get sick is to, you know, what the, the kitchen sink approach, yeah. right. It's just to try everything. And, and there's something to that is like, um, that's okay. I don't have anything against it, but it also, I believe at the same time creates this sort of desperation within us, which is not healthy. Mm-hmm. So for me doing an a obsession, couple, an obsession, right. Mm-hmm. And, um, some people think it's like, it's, it's a good thing to be obsessed about one thing in life. And, and I don't know if obsession or passion are the word that I would use, you know, that implies this sort of like intense energy. And so seeking, for, yeah, energy. seeking. Right. And so, Again, kind of showing up how I am each day. But again, however I show up, I'm going to move my body a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to exercise. Meditation is not for the mind, but, you know, it, it, it exercises the mind and the emotions and the spirit, you know, that whole holistic approach. And it helps to create that coherence between head and heart. Yes. 
Yes, I think that's important too. So, um, yeah, I sort of found a, a couple of things, a couple of biohacks, if you will. And I, I still swear by them. I still think that, you know, compared to a lot of the other things I've tried, and we could go on for days of things that I've tried, um, vitamin C was very, you know, very safe and very effective. Mm-hmm. And the same was true for ozone. Mm-hmm. And I think those things were helpful to get me stabilized. But again, it comes back to on a physical level, um, I've found that with anything, you know, whether you want to create a meditation habit, whether you want to improve at a musical instrument or any sort of, you know, hobby or anything like that, it really comes down to five minutes every day beats the hell out of 35 minutes one time per week, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's that's been an important thing for me too on a physical level. Take it easy, slow down, mm-hmm. be where I am, and just build build something. I like to say what's – and I do this with my clients too because when they're inspired, which is wonderful, they go, okay, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do this, 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 this. And they want to – you know, I say, okay, how can we build an action plan? And I watch my clients go extreme with their action plan. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I let them try it for a week or two and see how it goes as an experiment just to kind of show them because nine and a half times out of ten, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. They don't continue doing it and it leads to some sort of burnout or that inspiration Mm. is gone the next day and they're back in that like, ah, this stuff isn't working. You know, they're really Mm. focused on working, whatever that means. And so I found that in my own life and the most effective thing working with clients as well is like, hey, we're going to play a game that's a little bit different than everything you've been taught since you were young, especially in school. What's the bare minimum (laughs) that you can commit to doing every day Mm -hmm. or every morning? And that bare minimum approach is great. You know, I'm think, what's the movie? Um, was it Office Space? Where like you, you're only wearing 15 pieces of flair, and she's like, "Well, isn't that the?" And he's like, "Well, it is the bare minimum." Are you okay with doing the bare minimum? <laughs> um, <laughs> Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that's that's actually been one of the biggest changes, the most profound things that I can implement in my life is like asking myself. What am I willing? What am I really willing and able to commit to right now? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the bare minimum approach is something that I live by now. Yeah, yeah, it's great advice. Share with us a few of your philosophies or rules for life, you know, your your guiding principles, if you will. Yeah. Be yourself. Mm-hmm. Be yourself. And, I, and that's something that can be unpacked. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, philosophies on life that might sound a lot more exciting or interesting than that, you know, but for me, there's nothing more important. Um, it comes down to, it it comes down to what I was speaking about with interconnectedness, you know, spirit moves through all things. Everything is energy. Everything is vibrating. That's true on a scientific level. That's true on a woo woo level. And as a musician, nothing's more exciting to me than knowing that the world is based on sound. What a fascinating thing that ev- that sound is vibration and everything in this universe is vibrating at different frequencies. What that means to me is that everything is God. I see only God here and I see only me here. When I look at you, I see me. And when I'm living in my ego, of course, I don't see that, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm a regular person and I go out and I, I see other I see self and other, and our culture reinforces that. Some cultures do a better job of not reinforcing that, and some cultures do. Our culture reinforces the self and other. 
So, of course, when I'm driving down the road and someone cuts me off, you know, my first instinct is, hey, asshole, you cut me off. My second instinct, and sometimes it's my first on a good day, is, well, thank you, God. Hello, God. Thank you for cutting me off today. Right? I look or I walk around on the sidewalk and I say, well, look at that. That's an interesting looking God. Ooh, that's kind of a funny looking God. Ooh, that's a very beautiful looking God. <laughs> you know? And so my my philosophy is be yourself because God is in all things. Spirit is moving in all things. And God decided to show up exactly as you. God decided in its infinite power to show up as all these different things mm-hmm. and to be exactly as they are. And even in my Oracle reading, you know, I read from the Oracle deck sometimes that I got from my girlfriend, the Shamanic Healing Oracle deck. And I just did a reading this morning on Instagram. And sure enough, it was talking about wolves are just wolves. Deer are just deer. Deer are not trying to put on a costume show and be a bear, for example. And there's so much pressure. And I think there's a lot of pressure from the spiritual New Age community these days to look a certain way. A lot of people are like, yeah, you know, I got out of my corporate job and now I wear a mala around my neck and I'm different now. It's like, <laughs> okay. The point is, be yourself is, is the most profound lesson in value for me because that's exactly what God wants to do. You're mm-hmm. fighting God wanting to appear as you when I try to be like you, mm-hmm. right? And that's a good example because you're an older brother. And I'm a younger brother and there's that, you know, since we were younger and I'm sure it still comes up, right? I'm, I'm, I'm more sure of myself as an adult now, but especially as a younger brother, you're looking up to the older brother. I, I want to be like him, you know, and, and noticing all the ways that you're separate and wanting to close that gap, right? That's what we do. I want to close. Oh, that person looks a lot more loving than me and a lot more compassionate than me. You know, and again, that's just another way to stay outside of who we really are. Mm-hmm. And to stay in that headspace, right? Mm-hmm. Seeking, trying to be different. So for me, the ultimate expression of life is to be exactly who I am, knowing that this is how God decided to show up mm-hmm. in this form. And there's a bravery and courageousness with taking time to reflect on who you really are and then being willing to show up as that authentic version of yourself where you're not trying to impress people or win accolades or do what's going to make you more money. Mm-hmm. You're focused on being the truthful embodiment of who you've always been and willing to be vulnerable Yeah, with people. Vulnerable. You know? Yeah. I think that's the key word there, right? Is like mm-hmm. willing to be vulnerable. It's like, you know, we all put up our armor in whatever way because of fear of being perceived this or that. And that fear is like, I, I, I'm afraid to perceive myself a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm a loving, compassionate person. I'm also an angry little shit. And being able, you know, what, what you're talking about, being yourself and being vulnerable, allowing myself to be who I am is so powerful because it, it comes down to also living in authenticity means Knowing how infinitely complex you are, knowing that I can be both of those things and both things are true, both things are in me. Mm-hmm. That's so freeing, man, right? Mm-hmm. It's like rather than, rather than wishing only pieces of me, you know, seeing some pieces of me as, as acceptable and other pieces as unacceptable, that's a tiring road to walk. 
you know, that's an uphill battle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and yeah, embracing all the different parts of me. And like you said, getting to know yourself, but also not needing to have a concrete image of yourself. Mm-hmm. Also be willing to say like, I can never really know most things about this life, right? We get our strong opinions and we get our strong instincts. And sometimes we're like, no, 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 this is the truth because it's intuition speaking to me. And that's cool. That's true. But at the end of the day, it's your truth, right? It's mm-hmm. your truth. And so learning to, yeah, learning to be who I am, but not need to know exactly who I am and have a set in stone answer. Mm-hmm. Being willing to grow and change. And, and again, the more questions I ask, the more questions I get. That's the more I learn. The more I sit in silent meditation, I don't get clearer. I don't get clear. Oh, this is my purpose. Oh, mm-hmm. this is my mission. Oh, this is who I am. Bullshit. I get the opposite. I get, whoa, there's a lot of complexity in, in there. Mm-hmm. And isn't there beauty in that complexity? Aren't we drawn outwardly to complexity because it's beautiful? You know, we walk into the forest and we're like, oh my God, there's, there's all these different kinds of trees and there's all these, you know, the leaves on the ground that are dying and that's because they fall and they die and then they decompose. You know, we see the complexity of life and it turns us on. We see the complexity of ourselves and we're like, no, I want to, you know, I want to get it down to a package. You know yeah. what I mean? So I'd be able to describe it. So then when people ask, who are you at the end of, at the beginning of a podcast, I might be able to say, well, I'm Nicholas and these are my three roles and this is my mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't do that. People mm-hmm. ask me who I am. It's like. I'm Nicholas, you know, you want to talk more? (laughs) Yeah. What's your earliest memory? I remember puking on my father on an airplane on the way to Disney World. I remember exactly the color and the style of the sweatshirt that he was wearing, the sweater that he was wearing. He was wearing like a like a tan colored sort of fuzzy, you know, that like fuzzy Kurt Cobain sweater that he wore at the Unplugged in New York concert we really liked. Um, That kind of sweater, a little bit fuzzy, tan colored. And I remember Ralphin on it. Yeah. And do you know, do you remember how old I was then? Probably two. Two years old. I, I, I think I remember hearing even younger from mom or dad. I'm not sure. But, you know, that's my, what a memory, like first memory, you know, and I don't know how those things happen. I don't know how I could remember something from that young. Um, I actually blocked out a lot of my childhood without realizing it. And that's been something I've been exploring the past few years. A lot more memories have started to come back. But of all the stuff that I blocked out, I remember Ralph and on my father on an airplane. Do you remember what you were feeling or do you more remember the experience? I remember the color of the sweatshirt mixed with my vomit. Yeah. I don't remember. No, I don't really remember feeling too much or anything like that. I just remember the the event. I remember it must have been like a ah shit, he puked on me, and that internalized. You know what I mean? Like maybe maybe that maybe that feeling of screwing up. You know, maybe that feeling of screwing up or making a mistake, or maybe I'm analyzing too much, and it was just the memory that I have. But you know, it might have been my first memory of of disappointing someone in a way. Mm. Mm. What were mom and dad like growing up? When we were growing up. Yeah. So dad was on two days at the fire station and off one day. So when he was around, he was around, right? He made a point to be active and he, you know, he started coaching my soccer team when I was like eight, nine years old, which was a big deal. Cause like he, I don't think he knew 
anything about soccer. <laughs> he grew up he grew up as a football player, you know, in high school. He didn't know anything about soccer, but he was coaching our team just to sort of be present in my life, mm. which is, I think, you know, that's a beautiful thing, right? That's a beautiful example of what my father was like growing up. Um, we also had a very strained relationship, me and him, again, I think because, you know. Strange or strained? Strained. Okay. Strained. Um, it was difficult, especially in my teenage years. It was really difficult with dad, again, because I think I was an intense feeler. And I think, you know, and I didn't know how to deal with that. And my father certainly didn't either. Um, and it's come into my awareness more recently in recent years how much of a feeler he is. He's mm -hmm. a very, very, I mean, I would call him a highly sensitive person. I think he's very, very emotional and never got a chance to experience that or express that until mm -hmm. today that continues to today right um and so we had sort of a difficult relationship growing up but at the same time he was always there for me and always supportive um he was kind of a you know ask your mother type right so anything i'd ask you know mom was kind of the boss mom kind of wore the pants when it came to raising the kids um but i remember being supported by my father i remember him driving me around to all you know different sports and things like that and, and taking an active interest in in our lives and being there mm -hmm. um and mom as well sort of the same same story with mom you know like really selfless um really selfless growing up spent a lot of time thinking about us and what we needed and trying to make sure that we had access to every opportunity or everything. You know, I, I wanted to play guitar. Let's go get you guitar lessons. You know what I mean? I want to play this sport. Great. Let's go get you a lacrosse stick, you know, whatever it might be. Um, there was never a lack of support of mm -hmm. any kind, you know? Um, I think there was, yeah, with, again, with my struggles with depression and things like that, it took on more of a problem-solving approach rather than allowing me to express it and listening and creating a safe place, mm -hmm. which is something, again, I'm learning to do for myself and I hope to bring to my kids. Um, but the reason I say that is that there was a dedication to help. There's a mm -hmm. dedication to help and try to fix things no matter what. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, you just noticed I said the word fix things. So, again, that's where that got internalized. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, they were wonderful. They were wonderful growing up. What about you? What do you remember? About mom and dad? Yeah. Yeah, I remember a ton of support. Uh, mom was definitely a, a little bit more available emotionally. Mm -hmm. Dad cared a lot about making sure that we were uh, – that we were – financially going to be in a better position than mm -hmm. he was. And there was a lot of effort on his part to create a better life for us. Mm -hmm. And yes, that was based largely in the carbon, you know, financially and opportunities and no college debt and, yeah. and education and, and that sort of thing. No college debt. Right. We Which is not, huge. Uh, I have friends that are still paying off their debts. Yeah. And I can't believe that that's not, you know, for us, it was normal, mm -hmm. right? That our parents paid for college, but it's that's not a normal approach, you mm -hmm. know. And not everyone's able to. Mm -hmm. That was good, and it allowed us to, you know, do some caddying, make a little extra money there, and have spending money while everything else was essentially paid for, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful for for those things, and and I think both of our parents are very intelligent, which mm -hmm. helped, you know. They they didn't coddle us or treat us like children. A lot of times, if we had questions, they'd they'd give us adult answers. 
Um, and yeah, so I'm appreciative of them yeah. for that. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of gratitude there. What What was the first time that you remember crying or being really upset? Like, I have this memory when mom took away my pacifier and I was so pissed. I was laying in my waterbed <laughs> and I remember crying with every bit of anger and rage and frustration I had. And I was being so loud because I knew that if I was hurting, I was hoping that it would hurt mom enough to give me my pacifier back. Mm. And I went at it until I couldn't, you know, I think I was hoarse. I like yeah. lost my voice crying and it was part of the weaning process. But that's one of my first memories. So I'm curious, like, what, yeah, what's the first time you remember crying or being really upset? You know how, I mean, that's so tough. It really is so tough. If I were, if I'm going to answer, you know, relatively quickly without giving it so much thought, um, I don't really remember crying. I don't remember crying until maybe again, like in high school, feeling depressed. And like, you know, for me, it was like my, my depression decided to manifest through like I mentioned, like through like a difficult breakup or like, you know, an unrequited love situation, you know, like I, that, I remember being so depressed and crying a little bit then, but I can't remember too much else. And I know that I did. I know that I was, you know, I got fussy as a baby and I know I had, you know, there's also a memory of, of sexual abuse that happened by a babysitter that mm -hmm. I don't remember, um, I don't remember crying, but that's something that I blocked out until about 20 years later. Apparently it happened when I was six years old. Our, mm -hmm. our babysitter, who was also a neighbor, mm -hmm. asked me to put my fingers inside of her. And I did, because you're supposed to listen to the babysitter, right? That's what mom said before she left that day. Um, and I bring that up because it's not necessarily in my first memory of crying. I don't know whether I cried, but that's my first really emotional memory. And I was probably, I'm 34 now, I was probably 26 when I woke up one day and I go, whoa, I was like kind of raped, like semi-raped here, you know? Um, and that's, that's emotionally speaking, that's the, I remember the heaviness of it all. I remember telling mom, I remember her response to it being this kind of like really serious thing, but also I wasn't included in the seriousness of it. Like, oh, let's try to downplay it, you know, for the child's sake. But I remember all sorts of intense, intense, sad, complicated energy around that. Mm -hmm. That's probably my first memory of like a very emotional time, right? Not necessarily mm -hmm. crying, but, um, but pretty emotional. Yeah. And there was a lot there with her denying it. Her mom and our mom were friends. Right. You know, and they had a, a, a falling out as a result. And yeah, I remember that too. And where, where I was at was... You know, I'm, I'm this teenager who's like starting to get interested in women. And I know that that's a thing. And I'm like, oh, doesn't seem like that big of a mm -hmm. deal because I didn't know. Right. And I was just a little bit of an idiot. Me too. Yeah. Me too. There's a reason I blocked it out for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason I blocked it out. Um, but yeah, I remember when it first came back under my radar, it was like, you know, even even just now when I said that word, it's like, am I allowed to use that word, rape? 
You know mm. what I mean? What does that mean? What does rape really mean? You know, it's an intense word. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people have experienced really difficult things mm-hmm. along, you know, in the sexual abuse realm. But that, that's sexual abuse. There's no question, right? We're talking about a young child. I mean, really young. <laughs> Shit. You know, that's an impressionable age. First experience with sex mm-hmm. being... Um, inappropriate and forced, right? It wasn't mm. consensual and it was inappropriate. Mm. So yeah, there's no question. I think that um, I have explored and continue to explore how that affects my relationships with women and my sexuality and things like that. So mm-hmm. that's my first, that's my first really emotional memory. I almost don't remember anything besides puking on my dad at like age two or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then that, I remember that really well. I remember where it happened. I remember the couch that I was on when it happened. You know, I remember it all came flooding back. Mm-hmm. But as far as childhood memories, that's still something that like I'm exploring and, and sort of letting more memories come up because there's a lot that are missing. And it might be that my personality did change a little bit around that event. It might be that I did start to block things out. It might be that I did start to become a little bit more complicated and less happy all the time as I was before that, you know? Mm. So it's something that I'm, yeah, exploring. What would you change, if anything, about our experience growing up? No. Nothing. I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change anything about anything ever, including now. If you asked me that five years ago, I would have had plenty to say, but I wouldn't change anything. What do you admire most about dad? His hard work, his dedication. Like you said, um, yeah, dad couldn't wait to get out of his house and start working. And I understand where that came from. But the work, the work bug never left him. And we can see now, actually, how that's a little bit of a challenge for him because he's mm-hmm. older and he's not as capable physically of doing the work that he wants to do. Mm-hmm. And our we, dad has Parkinson's. Right. So, yeah, our dad has, has Parkinson's and he's a little bit older. And, and he, he has, um, we can say, Parkinson's-related complications as mm-hmm. well. You know, there's, there's a wide variety. And our dad has a lot of illness that mirrors yours and mine and mirrors what I've come to see as emotional stuckness mm-hmm. vibrating in the body so so slowly that it creates disease. Mm. A lack of movement mm-hmm. contributing to disease, dis-ease, I should say. Um, but I admire most about him, his hard work, his dedication. Um, that's always something that like, yeah, I looked up to and I still look up to. You know, as someone who's more like, I'm trying, I'm, I'm kind of like the work smart, not work hard type. You know what I mean? And I've always been like that. Even my teachers would say that growing up. But dad just worked his ass off and mm-hmm. he did it all for us. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think he did it because it was built into him a little bit. But I know that he did it all, like you said, to, to provide for us. And he really did. You mm-hmm. know, he grew up in a, in a family where, you know, they weren't poor, but th- they didn't have the same material abundance that we have Mm -hmm. and he got everything by working hard Mm -hmm. and our dad is one of the smartest people I've met in real life and I'm not saying that because he's my father I'm saying objectively his IQ is crazy high it's like 140 something I I don't even know but I know he's a super fucking smart guy in like Mm -hmm. all sorts of areas um and he didn't need to work in a job that reflected his intelligence for example 
Mm-hmm. And I grew up with that. I grew up with that, like, I'm smart. I should do this. Or, I, you know, all that kind of like a little bit of entitlement about what jobs were acceptable or unacceptable for me. You know, right. my dad had no problem having an IQ of 150 or whatever and breaking his back and, mm-hmm. you know, in physical labor and, and all that kind of shoeing stuff. Shoeing horses on his days off. Shoeing horses, working as a um, as a handyman. And the mm-hmm. fact that he knows a little bit about electricity, a little bit about plumbing, a little bit about construction. I mean, he built like half of our house, mm-hmm. you know, like all sorts of really wild stuff. So that's what I admire about dad the most. Yeah. What do you admire most about mom? Um, a loyalty. Mom, I, I got my loyalty from mom and, and I don't I don't give up on people. And mom is the one who taught me that. She does not give up on family. You know, when mom makes wedding vows till death do us part, she fucking means it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She means it. And she means that with her kids, too. She means that with her friends, you know. Even when relationships are strained, even when, you know, times are tough, no matter what it may be, mom is, is a loyal animal, you know. And she's emotionally, like I said, she... She might struggle to express emotions and therefore, you know, doesn't necessarily always know how to handle them in other people other than to sort of problem solve. But again, that that loyalty makes it so that she's always there for you in her way. Mm -hmm. It might not be the way you need, (laughs) but she's always there for you. Mm -hmm. And, And in that sense, it is what you need. You know what I mean? We do need that loyalty. We do need to know that there's, you know, I I was difficult in my way especially because I wasn't connected to who I am. And that creates difficulty within and without. And mom was always there for me, never gave up on me. And I admire that. What do you admire most about your brother? Tenacity. Um, what I admire most about you is similar to what dad has, but you're, you are, you're the opposite of, of me in the sense that I have a tendency it's interesting. I see the big vision. And then once it's time to go to work, I get really stuck in the small details and sort of the perfectionism of it. And I spend a lot of time not moving forward or moving forward slower than I could be because I'm really bogged down in the details and trying to make everything perfect and trying to know exactly how it's going to look and how it should be before I start. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're the opposite in that way, in a way that I really admire. And it's something that I do try to embrace more and more in my life learning from you. I try to learn from you how to just go after it. And I've watched you repeatedly in your life get an idea, go after it. You know, the community that you're building right now in North Carolina, that's a prime example of like one day Anthony was talking about this and I was like, oh, cool. It sounds fun. You know what I mean? And like the next day he's taking phone calls and talking to people like what the heck is going on? You know what I mean? That would have taken me a year. You know, so that's something that I've always admired that like I've seen it happen countless times with you. I've seen you start businesses and just explode and start, you know, building something really powerful and making money and helping people. I've watched you pivot in businesses. I've watched you pivot in your career. You know, I watched you like kind of kill it at LaSalle Bank and then wake up one day like, what am I doing in the baking industry (laughs) and just get right out and start something new and go. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I could say a lot of things I admire about you, Anthony. I admire um, I also admire how far you've come, I think, in terms of being able to em- embrace emotion in your own life, learn how to hold space for yourself and others and sort of have ex- acceptance 
for, for people of, of differing opinions, even, for example, um, I could say a lot, but for me, the most, the most, the coolest thing about you to me is that like, you don't fuck around, <laughs> you get an idea and you go and you launch yourself into it and you're not concerned about perfectionism and it turns out pretty damn well every time, you know? Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> what's, uh, what's something you wish you could have told me when we were kids? Um, I don't know whether you knew this or not, but I guess I would have told you that I was always looking at you. I was always looking to you. You were my example for everything. You know what I mean? Like I, we were talking about this earlier, being yourself and, and not wanting to be other people. I wanted to be you in so many ways. And that created, you know, in a general sense, I can look back and say like, oh, that wanting to be him or wanting to be other people caused some tension within. And I'm glad I've sort of become more comfortable with who I am and seeing the ways that we are very similar and some of the ways that we're, we're a little different. Um, but I was always looking at you and I was always looking up to you. And I, I wish I could, I'm telling you that now, I'm telling you that now that you were always the source of like, you were a God among men to me growing up. You know what I mean? You were that thing I looked up, look up to and wanted to be. Yeah. And in many ways you still are. I love you. I love you too. How could I have been a better brother to you when we were growing up? Nothing comes to mind. Nothing comes to mind. Like I said, you know, we fought. I remember the two or three fights we had because they were so rare. You were a good brother, and you're still a good brother. A couple of them involved some drinking, too. Ah, well, that was a little bit later, too. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't count. <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe we'll tell that later if we want or not. What's, what's your favorite childhood memory of us? Ali Ali Oxenfree. Can you explain that for the listeners who aren't familiar? Yeah. Um, we played a game. I thought the game was called Ali Ali Oxenfree for a while. Someone else had the name Hamburger Hill. Mm -hmm. You know, to this day, it doesn't really matter what the game is. But we used to play a game with we, we were also blessed to grow up on a street where people hung out. You know, we got together with the neighborhood kids and we hung out. You had a few kids around your age and I had a few kids around my age. And we also all got together. And sometimes we'd have big epic games with like 10 to 15 people. And sometimes it would be more five or six of us. But we played this hide and seek like game where there was a home base, right? Whoever was it would go and they'd close their eyes at the tree, which was home base. And they'd count until 30 or 60, I think it was, while everyone else would run around our property. We, we had a pretty decent sized front and backyard combined. So people would go and hide. We'd play this at night and people would hide somewhere along the property. And after counting to 60, the person who was it would say, Ali, Ali, oxen free. And that meant that the game was on and they were hunting you. And your job was to get from wherever you were hiding to the home base without the person who was it tagging you. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, you know, I wrote a story about it years ago. Right. It's it's like. It's the, it's the most beautiful part of my childhood until now. You can, it's, it's choking me up a little bit right now. Excuse me. But um, 
those days were like, that was a time that has gone by. You know, that time doesn't really exist anymore. And you and I, for the past year, because of this, you know, coronavirus situation and whatever, we both found ourselves in the past year living at home in our family house with mom and dad in the house that we grew up with. And there's a lot of nostalgia to that that comes up. And you look around and you don't see kids out playing in the street these days. It doesn't exist anymore. And maybe in some areas it does, but I see more and more that our time was was a special time. And it was the end of the times where kids could f- play comfortably and safely in the street. And mom would come out and ring the dinner bell and you'd go, you know, okay, it's time to go, you know. Or she'd just scream like or a banshee. Or she'd just scream. <laughs> so the Ballinger's mom <laughs> rang the dinner bell. Our mom just screamed like a banshee. Um but yeah, you know, we I just have such such amazing memories of like running around under the summer sky or under the autumn sky. Um you know, and jumping into piles of leaves and like all that stuff, but playing that game and just like all of us being kids and feeling like that would last forever. You know what I mean? I still mm-hmm. like I still have that feeling sometimes where like we're we're kids and we're under the night sky and it's going to be this way forever, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course that changed, you know, of course, like I remember when you went off to college, that was like, oh man, like what the heck now? You know, what does that mean? You know, my brother's gone. Like, you know, life went on, but I always look back at that memory, not just because of the personal experience, but also because of the nostalgia of it. And I've I've gotten to see in just 34 short years, how much the world can change in a short amount of time, you know? And nowadays, I don't, I don't see children out playing. And when I do, they're just staring at their freaking phones. <laughs> um, so to have those memories was just like such a powerful time just to play that game. You know, I was like hide and seek, you know, or just mm-hmm. riding our bikes around or, you know, going riding our bike to the swimming pool, you know, things yeah. like that. Those are the memories that really stand out, you know, like the memories of a bygone era, if you will, you know. Yeah. What about you? You know, I remember us playing and really having a lot of fun with Nintendo. Sure. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of games that that we loved on on the various Nintendos. You know, I sort of felt like for me it was descending appreciation as they got more advanced. But you you kept your skills honed and. You well, know, remember kind of, we rented Nintendo sixty four from Blockbuster. Yeah. You could rent the system, and that yeah. was our first experience with Wave Race. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to share a memory. I, I find it a little interesting how few memories you have from childhood, because when even almost before you could talk, you had you displayed an exemplary memory mm. where we'd play the memory game. And like, I don't know if you could even speak words yet, but you would ha- have the whole thing. You'd work everybody. Mm. Um, still could. Still still could, still right? Could. So it's interesting when you're like, oh, I don't remember a lot from growing up, yet that memory's still there yeah. and that, that capacity. Um, you had an incident in preschool that involved some indecent exposure and then what I considered to be a pretty genius way of getting yourself out of trouble. Maybe you could, I don't know if you remember that, 
but maybe you could just briefly speak on that, just because it's like a funny little bit on, on how that all went down. Sure. And I, what, what motivated you in the first place? Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, some of those questions I can't answer, but can't answer, but some of them I can. Um, I remember the incident. I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear your take on it and how I got out of it. But um, yeah, I'll tell the story in a slightly like different way, sort of like an M. Night Shyamalan approach to the story here. Um I've started skateboarding in the past few months. It's been really exciting. So recently I was at the skateboard uh, skate park uh, three weeks ago, just cruising around. And this guy who's maybe 40, year old, 40 years old looks like a father. He comes and he's skating around and eventually his wife and his kid do come and they sit down. And um, they're watching him skate around for a bit. And I don't remember how it happened, but like I, I, can't, I think I stopped skating for a minute and went to grab a drink of water. And I said, hey, how are you guys doing? Whatever. And we chatted a little bit. And at some point they said, OK, well, we're going to go over here and play on the, the playground here. And I said, ah, that playground, you know, that playground's a great playground. When I was young, I climbed up onto that fake train and I dropped trow and I just peed off the train. The, the train's of, still there? The train's still there. Yeah. It's <laughs> so in the middle of recess. I just dropped my pants to my ankles and just just let it ride and off then, the know, top of this like, off the top of this train yeah probably six foot you know train i don't know how i got up on top but i was i was a bit of a climber growing up too so i climbed my way up there and i pissed off the train um i don't remember though i don't remember what happened after that how did i get out of it so who was it mrs shapiro who was your teacher at the time could have been it could have been well they called in mom maybe mom and dad but i i i, I was retold the story from mom and you were crying and you know the 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 teacher essentially whether it was mrs shapiro or someone else was like you know how do you explain yourself and you started crying and you go it's just been so hard my cat died (laughs) and she's like oh no and she started having empathy for you and she's like what who what was tell us tell me about your cat nick and you were like oh his name was zeb and i just loved him so much and he died and so she told mom she's like he nick told me about zeb and and how heartbroken he is and i just really feel for him and mom was like that cat died before he was born And you'd just seen like a picture of this cat. Yeah, I don't even remember the cat. And you just bust into this very believable uh, story and excuse that that worked for you. It worked. I learned. I learned. I had to unlearn emotional manipulation because I did. I did learn it, and I did become pretty good at it. And sometime in my life, I realized that I was good at it. And. uh, and yeah, I got out of that habit a little bit. But yeah, absolutely. I got in trouble a lot growing up. You know, there's also the time that everyone said our principal's name, first first grade or kindergarten it was, and our principal's name was Harry Grover. So we're all lined up in the hallway to go to the gym or something like that. You know how they make the kids walk in a line like cattle. And uh, we stop and, you know, Mr. Mr. Grover walks by and he goes, hi, kids. And everyone goes, hi, Mr. Grover. And because my mom, like, was friends with him or whatever, I knew his first name. And I said, hi, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember getting yanked into the principal's office. <laughs> and I remember, God, I was good. Huh? I was a little shit. I remember, you know, OK, well, how do you explain yourself? You know, being taught the lesson that you're not allowed to call adults by their first name or whatever. 
Um, and I remember hearing that or whatever. And next thing I know, I'm like, oh, what's that? And it was his rock tumbler. Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, the principal's telling me about his rock tumbler and showing me his rocks. And I've got him completely off the whole, the whole topic of me being in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was a recurring pattern. Yeah. That's great. That's great. <laughs> what was your most prized childhood possession? Wasn't it a blanket? Wasn't there a blanket that I carried around all the time? You were pretty obsessed with that blanket. And it was ripped to shreds and I just yeah. like refused to let it go. Yeah. Is that what you remember? It would be it was like stained dark from like dirt and just getting like I don't know if it's Piss Linus vomit, or one whatever. of them, but you would just drag that thing with you. Yeah, everywhere. like Linus, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, you loved that thing. That's what and I you would remember. Like, you would do something with it where I don't know if you'd smell it or rub it on your nose or something like that. Um yeah. I, yeah, I always smelled things, even things that smelled weird or bad. You know, like I was always like fascinated by like a stinky fart. And I'd be like, oh, that's gross. But then I'd smell it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? I don't know if I remember. Yeah, that might be one of those childhood things that I, that I just like don't I don't have a memory of. I mean, you know, my instinct there's something that pops up right now. I don't know what it is, but it makes me want to say firefighter because that's a common one and my dad happened to be one. Yeah. Um, but it's not It's not an actual memory I have. Do you no. have a memory of that, of something you wanted to be as a child? I, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Yes, you did. Yeah. Yes, you did. <laughs> yeah. And, yes, then, you and did. then I went through a veterinarian phase. I don't remember that. I remember the yeah. marine biologist. Yeah. I love the ocean, yeah. and, and I was interested in studying ocean life. And the rainforest at one yeah. point became a passion of yours yeah. young. You wanted to save the rainforest when you were, like, yeah. real young, I remember. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was obsessed with sharks and the rainforest and um, always loved animals. Yeah. What, what was your worst fear as a kid? My worst fear as a kid. You know, I want to say as a kid, I was remarkably fearless. Do you do you have a memory that, that runs counter to that in any way? No, you were pretty fearless. I remember being, and it's funny, so fear plays a role in all of our lives. And fear increasingly has played a role in my life. I've become more aware of my fears and, you know, my, my current and past fears, if you will. Um, so fear is something that like, yeah, you know, I, I can point out in all sorts of ways how I've become um, more guarded and more fearful in certain areas than when I was a kid. But I remember when I was a kid, I would jump off anything and I wouldn't be afraid of falling and whatever. And and even going into high school and college, like, you know, even even experimenting with things, you know, like in, in college, someone was like, hey, you want to try acid? And I was like, yeah, let's give it a go. You know, it's kind of and like now, I, you know, when I was younger, I did experiment with with things like that a few times. And now if you ask me like, you know, you want to try acid? I'd be like, oh, I don't, th- I don't think so, man. I don't think I trust what might happen with that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I become a little bit more. You know, it's funny because I'm, I, I spend time in meditation, and I, the more I, the more I see what's going on up there, I see like, oh, there's a lot of stuff up there. I'm not sure I want to open that that bag. You know, yeah. <laughs> and and we went. You know, you and I went a couple of years ago, and we did you know four nights of of drinking ayahuasca um, in Costa Rica. 
and I was I was pretty freaked out to do it, but I did it. Um, and I held myself back from my fear a little bit. I didn't drink full time every time, but in any case, I bring that up because like, even then it was like a controlled setting with, you know, people around to support you and even a medic on staff and like all that stuff. But there was still that fear. You know, if you asked me to be as, as fearless and adventurous as I was in college when someone's like, Hey, let's just take a bunch of mushrooms. <laughs> um, no, now there's a lot more. Yeah. I would say I would, I would admit that there's more fear present in my life than when I was a kid. Yeah. What's one embarrassing obsession or story from your childhood? An embarrassing obsession or a story from my childhood? Okay. I used to play this game called Major, it's technically called Major Mud. And a mud is actually a type of game. It was a multi-user dungeon. And what that meant is that it was um, it was a text-based game, right? There were no graphics, if you can imagine what that might be like. But these games were pretty popular for a while. They were like the first computer games. And by the time I got to it, when I was like 11, 12 years old, maybe, um, obviously games with graphics had existed for a long time and I grew up playing them. But someone introduced me to this. And I was really in love with like fantasy type stuff, you know, wizards and, and paladins and all that kind of stuff. So this was a game that like, you know, it would say you're in a room with blah, blah, blah. There is an angry giant rat in the room and you'd type like attack giant rat and you would get into a little fight with it where it would say like, OK, you attack rat for seven damage. The rat eats you for five damage, you know, like all like it was a really cheesy, nerdy game, but I was obsessed with it. And I was so obsessed to the point where I remember countless times we had like one family computer in the house and it was yeah. in the living room. It was in the den. And so mom would put me to bed and I just purposely stay awake. I remember I used to sing to myself to stay awake. So I remember commonly I would sing um, Run Around by Blues Traveler. I remember <laughs> constantly singing that to myself to, to stay awake. Why you want to kill you? And... Um, <laughs> I'd stay awake for maybe 20, 30 minutes or something after she'd put me in bed. And then I'd get up and I'd sneak down the hallway as quietly as possible. And I'd turn on the computer and I'd log into mud. And, you know, this was in the days of the 56K modem. So it was the <laughs> to connect to the Internet. <laughs> and I'd connect to the Internet and I'd go and I'd attack giant rats for as long as I could until mom would wake up and she'd go, hey, what the heck are you doing? And she'd catch me and she'd drag me back to bed. But that was like that was something I remember happening for a while. Like I just kept you couldn't keep me away from the game. I was so obsessed. You were able to get away with so much more right. than I ever did. Not only because a, you had the balls to try a lot more stuff. I didn't, I didn't start sowing my oats until, uh, later in high school and then, and then college. But I was also impressed with how much you didn't get caught because mom was like a ninja. She yeah. was, you know, she was like special forces mom where she'd with me pick up on everything. And then you were able to get away with so much. What you didn't get away with a lot or maybe you did in proportion to the amount of times you engaged in this activity was was smoking weed. Oh yeah. I remember a stretch where That's How many times do you think you got caught smoking weed? I got caught smoking weed at least 3. I want to I got caught smoking weed like 4 times in a year and a half. And when we say caught, we mean like caught by the authorities, right? I'm not talking about I did get caught once by mom. I was hanging out 
uh, it was senior year of high school was when I started to smoke a lot of weed. And um, one day I went I was smoking a joint on the back porch after I thought mom was asleep and she came out at one point and I just like, it was still lit, you know? So I hid the joint on the side of me and mom's over here and she's like, hey. And I'm like, hey. She's like, what are you doing? Nothing, just hanging out. And she goes, you're smoking weed, aren't you? <laughs> and I go, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, it turned into a thing. She caught me. And we had, a, you know, I think at that point she knew I did and she was somehow a little bit more accepting of it. You know, she didn't like it, but she, she kind of knew I was doing it. And that was towards the end of the year and I would be off at college soon, whatever. But yeah, there was a stretch where, um, Thank God it never showed up on my record because each time that I got caught, you know, the suburban cops were a little bit overzealous and they overstepped their bounds and they did stuff that, you know, they, they got the evidence in ways that were illegal, mm. essentially. So it never made it on my record. But I got caught at a party one time with weed. I got caught a second time with weed where I literally went to this party just to pick up weed with my buddy. And we were just going to go get weed and leave. And in the time that we were there, the cops showed up for a different reason. And, you know, later, I'm the funny part of that story is when my mom comes to pick me up an hour later, I'm downstairs on the couch with in handcuffs. And she comes down, throws her purse on the couch and goes, again? <laughs> Really? <laughs> and she starts yelling at me, and the police officer says, ma'am, you're going to have to calm down, blah, blah, blah. She goes, don't tell me to calm down. This is my son, and I'll speak to him however the fuck I want or whatever. <laughs> and she ripped into me. But, yeah, you know, then I went off to college, and in college one time we were driving around smoking a blunt before we went to the movie theater. And then we're in the movie theater and these cops are walking around and I'm like all paranoid and bloodshot eyes or whatever. And I realize they're like spending a lot of time looking at us. And it turns out someone saw us driving around and reported the car. And the cops were so, you know, serious about it that they went into the movie theater to look around to find us. Wow. And me and my friend just happened to be going to get popcorn. You know, we could have been in the theater safe, but we, you know, that exact. So there was like multiple times. And I also got caught with a few other people smoking weed in the dorms at one time. Mm -hmm. And I had to go to like this, I don't know what they call it, but like a trial of some kind with the board <laughs> and everything and had to prove that I deserve to stay in university and stay in the dorms. <laughs> I think stay in the dorms. They were going to kick me out of the dorms. <laughs> and thank God I was a good lawyer for myself. But yeah, that was an embarrassing stretch as well. It was like, what the heck? It was like the year and a half of, of tomfoolery. <laughs> How old were you when you realized Santa Claus wasn't real? Uh, young, right? Wasn't I pretty young? My memory is that you're in like eighth or ninth grade. Oh, yeah. No, you might be right that it was pretty late. I remember where it happened. I remember it was just in here. It was just in the um, in the basement in our laundry room. Um, yeah, I remember that clearly. I remember like helping mom with the laundry and I just looked at her and I'm like, he's not real, is he? She goes, what? I go, Santa Claus. I go, you can't fool me anymore. I know. <laughs> it's like something like that. I was like angry about it. You yeah. know? Was I really old? Really old. I think yeah. you're right. That does yeah. come back to me now. Well, that I, it, yeah. it, it was it was this combination of we had a guy from the fire department with dad that would come Put on every a good show. year. Put on a good show. Super convincible Santa Claus. Super convincing uh, <laughs> Santa Claus. And then I had it spoiled for me by Heidi Best uh -huh. in like third grade. And I, I tried something similar with mom. 
but deep down I didn't want him to be fake. Uh-huh. And then when she was like, yeah, yeah, he's fake. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill that Heidi best, you know what I mean, for, for ruining this, um, I was heartbroken. Hmm. So then she's like, your brother still believes, you know, don't ruin it for him. And I didn't want you to experience that same shitty feeling of realizing like this awesome magical component of the world wasn't actually there, you know? I do remember, see, my instinct was, oh, it was because I was hip to things. I was always hip to things. You couldn't put Mm -hmm. much over me when I was a kid. So I think that's why my first reaction was that it happened young. But now that you say that, I definitely remember. (laughs) And I remember that that conversation years later being told of that conversation where mom said to you, don't you dare ruin this for your brother, that kind of thing. And, And then when it started getting into like. I'm like, he's in eighth grade, mom. And you were like having arguments with your friends. <laughs> and you're like, there's nothing you could say. I've met him. And I'm like, maybe we should tell him, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you're like, it's the right thing to do with this. No, point, right? you probably had had some of some of your peers believing that, it, you know, wondering if he was real. Oh, God. Um, what was your favorite meal or like treat growing up? My favorite meal was Polish sausage with au gratin potatoes. Oh, that was a good you remember one. That big casserole yeah. dish of cheesy au gratin potatoes with just like a giant, like long link of Polish sausage kielbasa in there. Oh, yeah. That those, was the best. Those were great. And like my other favorite meal was basically its equivalent, which was macaroni and cheese with hot dogs. Yeah. And I would like it with ketchup too. Yeah. Just like I liked almost everything with ketchup. I have memories of like whenever you and dad would hang out, like yeah. when he would babysit you, he would make that. He'd always make that. Yeah. Yeah. That was what, like, what that was did a home you, run. What was yours? You know, I remember in, in, I remember going through an Outback phase. You were obsessed with Outback Steakhouse. I thought it was like the greatest onion. thing yep. since, you know, sliced bread to be a cliche. Buca uh, de Beppo. Buca de Beppo. I worked there because I liked the food yep. so much. And you worked at Buca because you wanted a discount for the food. Yeah. You worked at Abercrombie because you wanted a discount for the clothes. Yeah. I remember you were very, very intelligent that way. <laughs> yeah. The stuff that I was spending a lot of money on. I was yeah, like, yeah. all right, I got to, I got to make this work i gotta stretch <laughs> these doll hairs um yeah outback what was your favorite book as a kid um i had a few for sure i really liked i i think i exclusively read fantasy novels growing mm-hmm. up i think I, and i remember i was a oh i remember my favorite dragon lance the dragon lance series do you remember that by chance no larry liked him too me and larry both read dragon lance but you know off the top of my head i would have said the red wall series yeah. because i happen to be reading it now i'm yeah. on book five of the red wall series right now you're flying through them. i'm flying through them it's a blast and um yeah reconnecting to that has also been amazing because i spent you know i was for years now like most of us, I think, like I, I, I've been reading much more nonfiction, mm-hmm. you know, or like books about self-development or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and so now I have a new thing where in the evening time, I only read fiction, mm-hmm. you know, and I started reading fiction more aggressively five, six years ago or whatever. And I just I tore through all the Hemingway books and I tore through, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the sort of modern classics, if you will. Um but yeah, when I was growing up, I really liked the fantasy and like the Red Wall series, the Dragonlance series. There was a book called The Sword of Shannara. 
mm-hmm. which I didn't realize until I was older was like an exact ripoff of Lord of the Rings. Like, <laughs> like just change the character names. <laughs> but it was great. It was this like 750 page book. It was like a huge, you know, huge undertaking. But I remember reading it in like sixth grade and like checking it out from the library in our middle school, you know, and mm-hmm. like, yeah, I remember I was into and that's also like, yeah, I, I want to make a point to like, if anybody's still listening to this, you know, like, yeah, I, I highly recommend fiction, especially before bed. You know what I mean? To kind of get out of that left brain stuff and just to like mm-hmm. explore worlds. You know, I'm mm-hmm. reading a book about anthropomorphized mice and woodland creatures right now, you know, but like it's it's so fun. You know, there's mm-hmm. something so beautiful about like just being taken to a different world. Mm-hmm. And like hanging out there for a while, you know, especially before bed. Yeah. And I find that like it has an impact on my dreams. You know, mm-hmm. I'm opening up that part of the brain so that like, you know, I'm preparing myself to go into the dream world a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's really fun. I like that a lot. That's real cool. Uh, what what was your favorite movie as a kid? Lion King. Hands down. Lion King, hands down. When I was a little bit older and I was like, just, you know, like, I, I might have been like 14, 15, 16. And I was like, you know, when I was just interested in women and such, it became Cruel Intentions. Mm. I watched Cruel Intentions. like With Ryan Philippi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like wanted to be him. I like was so, yeah, I like really wanted to be a womanizer. And I was so impressed by him. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Just like he just gets girls. Like, oh, yeah, I was like really into that for a while. I don't think that ever went away. That's still a very real part of me. That's like that's that's built into me still a little bit that like, you know, I don't know, like a bit of a womanizer thing. You know what I mean? It's built yeah. into me. Um, don't really act on it, but it's there, you know. Yeah. Uh, but The Lion King, I would come home every day from school. I watched it in the theaters with Yaya, which is grandmother in Greek. Um, I watched it in the theaters with her. I remember when Mufasa died, I cried my eyes out in the theater. And I remember like finding out later that Yaya was like super uncomfortable and didn't know how to handle this, right? That's mom, that's mom territory. That's not grandma territory, right? Yeah. Grandma's like, I just, we were supposed to have fun at the movies, right? I'm not supposed to deal with all this. So she was like, you know, trying to figure out how to handle that. But I remember I was crying my eyes out. But I loved that movie so much. I would come home every day from school. I'd pop that VHS in and play it. Like mm-hmm. every day for at least a whole summer. And know? it got to the point where you knew every line in the movie. Like you could act, we could be at dinner and you could act out the movie and each character. Isn't that funny that like I can't remember, but I know that I could start at the beginning of the movie and just go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what about you? Do you, did you have a favorite movie growing up? I love Ghostbusters. Uh, Ghostbusters, which you got me. Um, I got you. Well, I mean, I think you were like I was four, and, mom, and I bought it for you. Mom yeah, bought it for me. You, and were, said you it was were probably me. one or two. I think that came okay, out in '86 yeah, or '87. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but it was it was from you, and I was like, "Damn, he's cool." <laughs> how did he know I like this? How did he know I love this movie? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm rubbing my smelly blanket on my nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Ghostbusters: The Neverending Story. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked Flight of the Navigator a lot. Me too. We both um, liked that one. Yeah, and and I really enjoyed the sh- the TV show Hey Dude. Mm. Um, and, and salute your shorts. Salute your shorts. Both of those. What was, what was your favorite TV show? Eureka's Castle. I remember really liking Eureka's Castle. I'm not remembering that one. Maybe maybe you know it was like um, I think there were puppets of some kind or something. Okay. Kind of like Fraggle Rock type characters okay. or whatever. I can't remember it too well, but I remember a show called Eureka's Castle that I was obsessed with. Yeah. It's funny how it's it's so fun to play this game, man, because I 
so many of these things are like, it's crazy how fast Eureka's Castle came to me, even though I haven't thought about it in so long. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of other circumstances, I might not. You know, it's, right. it's interesting to me how, like, if someone else was asking me the question, I might not have that response. Right. It's something about you being my brother and that, like, that that fills the gap in the nostalgia almost and like, right. the memory. But, yeah, some of these things are just like, oh, Eureka's Castle. Oh, yeah. Polar Sausage with Agraten. You know, it's cool how it comes up. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. I was also obsessed with uh, He-Man, Masters of the Universe. Yeah. And you have a record. Thundercats. Thundercats, too. You have a record, like a vinyl. Me. I got you that too. Yeah, that's super cool. The vinyl record of like, yeah, what it's like a, a radio show of like He Man almost, yeah. right? It's, I want to find that. I've got it. It's packed up in one of these boxes. That's a cool item, man. That'll, right, that'll sell for a lot one day. But you shouldn't sell I'm it. I'm not gonna yeah. sell it. I don't want to sell it. Um, first concert you ever went to? Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Where at? The United Center. When, when was that? That was freshman year of high school. I went with Michael Rabin. We saw my, um, he was my homeroom teacher. I mm. think he was a gym, a PE teacher, and he was my homeroom teacher. Homeroom yeah. was like 15-minute session we had in the morning or whatever. He was my homeroom teacher, and I remember seeing him, and we run into him. His name was Mr. Budson. We're like, Mr. Budson, how are you? It's good to see you. And he was like, oh, hey, kids, what's up? And next thing you know, Mr. Budson's brother came up clearly drunk clearly high mm -hmm. like put his arm around his you know his brother he's like hey man, how are you doing? and mr budson's all uncomfortable he's like hey joe these are my students or whatever <laughs> and he was like you know the, the brother like tried to gather himself together for us but we were we were old enough to know the guy was shitty <laughs> <laughs> it was such a great experience but like um i was going to concerts like that was the beginning dude in high school um like through my junior year, at least, I would go to two concerts a weekend almost for like at least a year. I was going to concerts, right? Yeah. Um, but it's cool for me that my first experience was such a band, like such a big band, Crosby, Stills, Nash, That's and Young. Epic. And all four of them too, you know, because yeah. Crosby, Stills, and Nash performed without Young for a while. But like that was such an epic show to see all four of them there. Yeah. That's hilarious. You know what's interesting too is I don't remember if it was my I, I thought my first con or concert was Beastie, Beastie Boys, Boys and Tribe Called Quest, but I think the second one I went to was Farm Aid, which oh. had Neil Young as yeah, yeah. one of the headliners and Dave Matthews Band, okay. who I was super into. We went to like Dave at Alpine Valley was yep. like such a thing in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was so that many was memories at the Dave thing. shows. What What were you really like in high school? You know, athlete, musician, stoner. Like, imagine oh, this is a high school movie like The Breakfast Club or Dazed and Confused. Like, describe high school Nick as a character. Yeah, I'm still, I still love high school Nick. I still love who I am and who I was, and it's who I am still. That's one mm -hmm. thing that I've, like, I've thought about, and I think it's cool that I haven't changed in that sense. I'm an eclectic person. I believe we all are if we give ourselves a chance, you know, to, to explore ourselves and whatever. Um, but I'm an eclectic person with eclectic interests. And I'm going to say the word eclectic too many times, so I'll cut myself off there. But like I had I wasn't the jock, but I played multiple sports. You were captain of the varsity soccer team. I was captain of the varsity soccer team, like, you know, starting my sophomore year. Um and I was captain of the freshman volleyball team, mm -hmm. you know, and then eventually I switched and like, yeah, so I was I was in a leadership role in multiple sports teams, 
but I wasn't a jock. Mm-hmm. Um, I was playing nerdy fantasy games with no text and, you know, reading fantasy novels and stuff or whatever. Um, I still kind of fit in with like the goth kids, the emo kids or whatever. You know, I went through my like kind of emo phase where like, I remember I would wear like a, a like a armband here on my or a sweatband like here on my arm just because like the lead singer of Simple Plan did or something like that. You know, so I went through like that kind of pop punk phase or whatever. Um, but yeah, like I was I was difficult to pin down even back then. You know, mm-hmm. I and I'm and I'm proud of that. Like looking mm-hmm. back, I was very proud that like I didn't have enemies. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the coolest kid in school. Mm-hmm. But I was pretty well respected, and mm-hmm. I got along with a lot of folks. I liked that a lot about me, and I, and I still—that's still something of value to me. You know what I mean? To like, not necessarily um, people. People still say that that's something special about me, and that they're impressed by me. Like even my girlfriend tells me she's she loves the fact that like I can talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine another existence. I know that for a lot of people, it's like harder to open up to strangers. They take time. Even my girlfriend, like I'd never call her shy, but she like takes a little bit to get going. She's like a diesel engine in that sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas like I'm the guy that like I'll meet someone at a party and two minutes into it. And I'm like, uh-huh. And tell me what are your biggest fears? You know what I mean? Like I can just talk to anybody about anything and people open up to me. And, and that's cool. I've had a lot of people tell me like I'm able to talk to you in ways that I'm not able to t- that other people don't even seem interested in, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's I like that about me. What was your biggest insecurity as a teenager? Um, yeah, I thought my nose was big. I thought I had like a big Italian nose, and it made me ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, something like that. I think my my insecurity was like around around girls somehow even though like I you know I had girlfriends and you know I was popular enough with girls but like it didn't matter what was happening on the outside that was always a thing for me that like I always felt like I I had to be cooler and and not funnier I was pretty darn funny but I always felt like I had to be cooler and better looking and like you know yeah who did you take to prom and what was your prom night like prom was it prom? I think it was prom. You know, we had a couple of dances. We had three dances senior year, right? We had prom, but we also every year we had homecoming and we had turnabout. Mm-hmm. If I remember prom, I took Jillian Harvey. She was so cute. I had such a crush on Jillian Harvey my senior year of high school. We went to, I, I, I developed a crush on her at Kairos. Remember the retreat mm, we went yeah. to? We went on this like Catholic retreat and that was where I like really fell for her. I had such a crush on her. I asked her to prom and we went together. Um, and I don't really t- remember too many of the details of the dance. I do remember we were drinking and I do remember after the dance, our big event was to go to Big Bowl, which mm. is like a, what is it? Like a noodle restaurant like or something? like a lettuce entertainment restaurant. It is. I remember I didn't get to go in, unfortunately. I had to watch through the window of the school bus that we had rented. It was a big group. And I was out there in the school bus holding Jillian's hair back for her while she vomited in the bus, (laughs) looking through the windows. I think one of my friends was on weed brownies. I remember seeing Larry like on weed brownies, just like laughing inside Big Bull. And I'm just like, like this. I'm like, you know, just depressed that I can't go in while I'm like holding her hair back while she pukes. That's like how (laughs) I spent my prom. (laughs) What about you? Who'd you ask? Oh, I remember a couple I, of girls that you had a crush on, but I can't remember who you went where I, I, I asked uh, Jessica Giddles, and we went 
uh, we went together and, you know, went to this house afterwards. I think we went to Chelsea Kammermer's house. Who you had a crush on at one point. Who I had a crush on at one point. Earlier on, I think that was more like freshman, sophomore year. Um, but I, I liked Chelsea through a lot of high school. And, um, yeah, just kind of fumbling my way, trying to figure out, you know, I was I was a late bloomer. I was a virgin until I was 19. And... Uh, or at least 18. I think 21, 22 for me. Yeah. 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 I, I was, you know, and I, I'd hear all these, the guys soccer team would always, they'd call it like story time after we won, they would tell stories oh, on yeah. the bus of, of their high school sexual conquests. <laughs> and I was always terrified. Like, what am I going to tell? I got nothing, you know? And um, so, like, every dance had a little, like, American Pie feel to it. Yeah, we're yeah. like, this is the one. Yeah. You know, none of them were the one. Um, Can't hardly wait, right? Yeah. Yo, I gots to have sex tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He unrolls, like, to 20 condoms. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was aspects of, like, that Seth Green character and, you know, American Pie and all of this. Um, none, of it, none of it en ever ended up happening, probably because I was just, like, awkward and uh conflicted with you know what sex was was yeah. it a healthy thing was it something that you were supposed yeah. to wait until marriage to share with someone did you really give them some of your soul you know what do you give them i some? held that viewpoint for a while that like i didn't want to have sex until marriage or whatever and like i ended up losing my virginity like 21 years old in egypt um in just like the the least ceremonious thing, you know, it was it wasn't a great. After all that, it should have yeah. been better. Should have yeah. been not better, but yeah, better. Right. <laughs> is that uh, is that a story? Like what? How how did it go down? It wasn't too much of a story. You know, I met this girl. I went on. I I met her and went on a trip with her. I met her through a friend. So we went on this trip to the Dead Sea. Um, hmm this not the dead sea the red sea excuse me um this really cool spot had a great vacation me and her were kind of like it was four of us mm -hmm. it was like two girls and two guys it, it, not that there was anything between the other girl and the guy but there was something between me and her clearly yeah. there was chemistry and i think it was making the other two a little bit uncomfortable because we were kind of pairing off a little bit rather than you know so but nothing really ended up happening and then like we kind of continued talking after that little weekend and one night I saw her, we went for a drink and that was it. And then the next time I saw her, she like invited me over to this guy's house to hang for a bit. Mm -hmm. It was just like, we were just like, I think we were smoking hash a little bit and like had a cocktail or something. Mm -hmm. And then at one point she just like grabbed me and we went into this other room. And like before we knew it, uh, before I knew it, we were having sex. Mm -hmm. And I legitimately did not know whether or not I was having sex or not. I like couldn't, I was like, am I? I was like, am I in or not? I didn't know if I was in or not. And then I realized I was, which is like a weird thing. How do you not know? But I remember I was just like, so I didn't know what the heck was going on. Someone even walked in on us. I think I don't want to be too graphic for your listeners, but like she was uh, providing me with the service of oral sex <laughs> at one point. And someone walked in while that was happening. The guy who owned the house. Yeah. And like, you know, he was like, oh, and he left. And like, we were like so embarrassed. I was just like so embarrassed by it. It was so ugly and embarrassing. And then this guy, we left him out there alone. You know what I mean? In his own house while we were hooking up in his house. Like the whole thing was like not the way I would have planned it. And mm -hmm. I just kind of like let her take me by the hand and lead me there, both physically, mm -hmm. both literally and metaphorically. But it was, you know, it, it, like barely, I don't think we ever saw each other after that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was just like this really not a nice way 
you know, to after all this time of like kind of saving myself, even even though I had a couple of opportunities, I was like really set on saving myself. Yeah. And after all that time for it to go down that way is like, yeah, yeah. You asked me earlier if I'd change anything. I don't. I still don't think I would, but maybe that. <laughs> maybe that. Here's why friends don't let friends vaccinate. Fear does not stop death. It stops life. And worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. The COVID quote unquote vaccine is not a vaccine. They've said it will take multiple doses and even then require continuous reinjection. That's a drug, not a vaccine. Add to that that this is the first ever mRNA vaccine, which contrary to the propaganda websites and news outlets out there debunking the real risks, has the potential to change our genetic makeup, perhaps even making a legal case that humans who have received the vaccine have now been genetically modified, almost like a GMO. Let that sink in for a moment. And then you take into that, into consideration the fact that multiple countries are showing dozens of adverse effects. Hank Aaron, the Major League Baseball star, died just within a, a week of getting the COVID vaccine. And there are many more cases, far too many to even name here. This is part of the reason that many of us have decided to be the change that we wanna see in the world. And we are forming a regenerative, community-sufficient tribe living in harmony with nature in Western North Carolina. Here's a little bit of the community guidelines and manifesto for those of you guys that may be interested. It's gonna be off-grid power. So each home is going to have their own power either through propane, solar, hydroelectric, wood stoves, or some combination thereof. Uh, there's gonna be no Wi-Fi or wireless electricity, but we will have wired internet connections that are faster and healthier. Uh, each parcel of land on the property, each home site is going to have uh, spring water for drinking, bathing, and gardening. We have a regenerative philosophy that we're bringing. So if, for example, we need to cut down five trees to put in a road, we're going to plant 10. Um, we believe that we are divine creators in the image of God and that the laws of God uh, belong above the laws of man. Um we're going to encourage gardening, growing some or all of your own food. Many people don't realize this, but a family of four can be fed on just a quarter acre. Um, we're going to be connected to our local law enforcement, particularly the local sheriff. We're going to be attending um, meetings and lobbying for laws that uphold the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, our freedom, and the health and sustainability, I know that's a buzzword, uh, of, of Mother Nature. We're going to focus on the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, our currency is going to be trading of goods and services, um, possibly silver, possibly gold, but not relying on, uh, you know, paper money that's not backed by anything and certainly headed for a crash. Or... Uh, the cryptocurrency, which is um, part of, you know, this sort of 
slavery system that they're kind of trying to usher the unsuspecting into. Uh, we believe our greatest assets are our community, our character, and our health. Family is wealth. Uh, no mask, no vax. There's going to be community homeschooling. Uh, it's critical that we teach our children as they are our future. So we're going to be big on practicing critical thinking, challenging convention, seeking wisdom, not information. There's going to be no usury, so no charging interest on any loaned money. And all of us are going to be looking to add value, leaving everyone in our community better than we found them. Um, if you're interested in learning more about how you could possibly be a part of this community, uh, you can go to biohackercoaching.com. I want to be forthright and respect your time. The minimum investment is a 25K donation that guarantees uh, a quarter acre plot of land. Uh, 75K guarantees uh, a full acre of land and 195K guarantees three acres of land. And our community is a beautiful mix of entrepreneurs, healers, yogis, health professionals, families, and individuals who value freedom, connection, and living in harmony with Mother Earth. Uh, this sounds funny, but after 2020, you got to say it. All religions, except for Satanism and Luciferianism, are valued and welcome. So it doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, as long as God's at the top, um, that's all that matters. So, yeah. You can learn more about that and grab a time for us to talk at biohackercoaching.com. Just please make sure that, you know, the you're financially qualified. And if you would like to request, after you filled out your application, if you'd like to request that it is moved to the front of the line, you can text community VIP to 847-989-3743. Favorite musical album of all time? Ooh, yeah, Pet Sounds, right? uh, Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, yeah. Nice. What's the most rebellious thing you've ever done? I'm probably getting caught smoking weed numerous times for a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, um, quite a run there. I think I was pretty darn rebellious, especially growing up, but like not not in big ways. I just, you know, I was always the class clown. I wouldn't shut up. And I, I just remember vividly from I was from when I was young, the teacher's comments on my report cards were always the same. It was like there were you know there were like set, there were like a list of ten that they could choose from, mm -hmm. and I always had the same two. It was like, um, you know, talks too much out of turn, something like that. You know, like needs to needs to behave in terms of talking at the right times or whatever, and a pleasure to have in class. <laughs> and I remember that, like, always, like, I, I always had teachers that, like, they'd have to turn the other way to laugh or smile because I was, I was ruining their class, but I was funny. You know what mm. I mean? That's, like, my memory for as much. But I don't think I was super rebellious. Were you very rebellious? No. No, no. I was, uh, I, I was, hey, bud. you know, pretty, uh, stayed within the lines, uh -huh. at least in class and school and that sort yeah. of thing. And then as I got I got older, I started getting more rebellious. Yeah. And and you know, started seeing hypocrisy more and you know, challenging stuff that didn't make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was more like late high school, early college where a lot of that shift started to take place. Yeah. I was compliant growing okay. up. Mom yeah. would tell you I was very rebellious, but not in like specific ways that I could mention, just like super independent and a pain in the ass. And like, you know, I was the why kid, you know, like good yeah. luck trying to get me to do anything unless I'm on board with it, you know? Right, right. What What's something that completely changed about you as you got older? 
the fearlessness. Yeah. The fearlessness is definitely one of them. Um, being a more peaceful person, mm-hmm. um, becoming more aware of the fact that I actually enjoy uh, peace over chaos. I enjoy mm-hmm. silence over noise. You know, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Like I, for me, it was it was normal to be moving fast, talking fast chaotic you know lots mm-hmm. of noise around me lots of stimulation going from party to party but it, it it took me a long time to realize that that was actually a huge source of suffering in my life mm-hmm. that I was like living out of balance if you will mm-hmm. so it took me a while to realize that like actually um like socially and in other ways like I'm a little bit more like a sparkler where I like I can burn bright you know for a little while but I am introverted not mm-hmm. in the, introverted in the real sense of the word, not the way it's been it's been misunderstood now. Introverted as in self-oriented as opposed to object-oriented, you know, more mm-hmm. subject-oriented, mm-hmm. which means like I need to spend a lot more time with me. I need to spend a lot more time with silence. You know, there's a lot of times where I'm just like, you know, I'll tell my girlfriend, like, you got to put on headphones. I can't, mm. I can't hear noise. <laughs> you know, that kind mm. of stuff. Um, and learning, that's been a big change, you know, but learning to embrace that also has been a very healing thing for me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you really good at that most people aren't? Communication, I suppose. Is, is one of my strong suits that um, multiple people have told me I have a knack for communication, meaning that I can I can hold a conversation about pretty much any topic with anyone. Mm. I think that that's, yeah, I'm, I'm owning that a little bit more, that that's one of my greatest gifts. What about you? Probably tenacity. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> more so lately a commitment to speaking what I believe to be true Mm. even if I'm wrong sure right I won't I I value that people know I'm not lying Mm -hmm. you know even even if I'm not necessarily accurate I like that yeah truthfulness is something that you know it's still something I'm exploring. I think Mm -hmm. for a lot of, you know, I'm learning to be more truthful with myself and therefore others. Mm -hmm. And for a while I was, I was untrue to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your favorite place you've traveled? I've traveled to 22 different countries. I love traveling. Um, Sure hope I get the opportunity to do it soon. (laughs) I don't know if I'll be a tier two individual or not. (laughs) Um, But off the top of my head, because, you know, it's really it's it's very difficult, I think, to compare places that you were in for four days versus I lived in Egypt for seven years, for example, or I lived in Spain for three months. So to compare those to places that I was at for a long weekend or for a couple of weeks or something, it's a totally different, you know, it's a totally different experience. But the first thing that comes to mind immediately is Ethiopia. Mm. And I spent only four days in Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. four and a half days. Um, And it was just magical in every way. You know, there's certain places where you touch foot on the ground and you just like, yeah, that's it. And for me, that was Ethiopia. Like it was, 
it was the music, it was the food, it was the nature, it was the women, it was everything. Like everything about it to me was like the the, the maximum of what I had seen, you know? Mm. It's the, it's, it is, to this day, it's my favorite quiz, cuisine. Mm-hmm. To this day, they're among the most beautiful women in the world. They're like mm-hmm. all my type, you know, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, and just like my experience there was so special. Like it was, um, yeah, I had this these experiences of like going to these waterfalls. I went to the Blue Nile Falls, which is like, it looks like a scene out of Lion King, mm. you know, and me and my guide sat under the waterfall on a rock, like chewing cot, which is this like plant that they, they eat there, which is like, it's just like a mild stimulant, you know, it's like mm. similar to like coca leaves or something. I don't know why it's so illegal here in the States, but like just having that experience, just hanging out, like eating cot with peanuts with this guy under a waterfall and just like, just being just, just quiet, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember we were walking around and this like young eight year old kid like sold me a flute, mm-hmm. you know, and like just just all those like my favorite experiences have been in in what they call developing countries, if you will. I find that there's a a sort of spirit, a sort of joie de vivre there that's like, you know, some of those places, you know, you might call them developed developing. I would call them developed in the sense that they've resisted the the onslaught of white colonized patriarchal nonsense that, you know, most of the world is is being crushed under. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you you wouldn't know it until you get a chance to experience some different cultures and realize that, like, there is a lot about our systems that mm-hmm. are that are unhealthy mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what's your biggest worry these days and why my biggest worry i suppose my biggest worry is somehow somehow like yeah not not living up to my potential and and that's weird to say that because I find in some ways those are like empty words because I think every day I'm I'm living up to my potential like as much as I'm living in authenticity and integrity and just showing up as I am mm-hmm. that's success to me. Mm-hmm. I, I've had success of various kinds. I've I've worked in jobs where I made quite a bit of money and I was living comfortably. You know, I've I've had some of the standard visions of success in my life, but more and more. My success is measured based on, yeah, my authenticity, my integrity, and how I show up as me every day, to the whole be yourself thing that we were talking about. But my my worry sometimes that pops up is that I, another thing I'm good at, Anthony, besides the communication is being a visionary. I am an outside of the box thinker. You know, people are like, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I'm like, I'm an anarchist. I want to burn the whole system down. And I believe in decentral. I believe in decentralized control. You know, I believe in, you know, us here in this street deciding what our street needs, you know? Yeah. So I'm always, I'm always thinking sort of outside of the box and, and I have big visions for what I believe would be a healthier way of living for all of us and a more interconnected, spirited way of living, if you will. Um, I suppose my worry is that I get more bogged down in the small details of how to go about achieving that or, you know, like really focused on that big picture so much that I kind of lose track of like what I should do day to day to make it happen. The actual physical action steps, right? Embodying the big vision. So it's easier. It's easy for me to dream. It's easy for me to see, guys, 
we're sick and disconnected and angry and willing to willing to sign on to things that are not in our best interests, which the world is doing en masse today, right? The collective has chosen things which are not in its best interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm willing to see all that and kind of I can spend a lot of time there. And sometimes I distract myself from, okay, what are the concrete steps that I need? What am I building here? What's, yeah. what's, what's the offering that I'm creating for the world right now? You know what I mean? And, and what do we really need? Yeah. So that's, I suppose, my worry is, is and it's, I don't worry so much. I'm, I'm, I'm a person with a strong history of worrying, and I find myself worrying less and less and trusting more and more, and I'm so happy about that. But that does come up sometimes, that like, what if I don't, gosh, I, I have to be humble but honest. I'm blessed with a great level of vision and a great level of intelligence and a great level of being able to get things done. You know, I've embodied and manifested a lot of powerful things in my life. It had a strong impact. When I was a teacher, I was a heck of a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, and the kids really love me. Um, you know, and I've, I've brought certain things to different positions. And I guess now that I'm working for myself, you know, mm-hmm. and I have my own, you know, sort of vision. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I hope I can continue to to embody the big ideas that I have and really bring them down into a tangible place. Yeah. And and are you doing any coaching these days? Yeah. Yes. And yeah. for people that are interested in learning more about that and reaching out to you in that way, mm-hmm. how would they do that? Yeah. So people can find me at my website, waveandocean.com, or they can find me on Instagram. Just send me a DM and I'm, I, you know, I, I always respond to my DMs. I've made that a point that like, even as my account grows and I get a lot of messages, um, I might not respond the same day, but I, I make a point to get to all my DMs. And I'm proud of that. I've had a lot of people say like, you got to shut that down. You got to protect your energy. But that's nice to me to be able to connect still. Um, but yeah, waveandocean.com is where you'll find details about the the healing slash coaching that I do now. And I did take, um, I've taken the past probably eight months off of that because I've been, um, I've been going through some training and some initiation mm-hmm. and sort of integrating a new aspect into my coaching. So for a while I was doing my own kind of version of spiritual coaching and guidance. Um, and I've taken this time off because... I've been working with my teacher who is from the Quero Nation in Peru, lives way up in the Andes um, and has been teaching me his tradition. They're the descendants of the Inca and he works in the Inca medicine tradition. So you could call it energy healing, for lack of a better word. You could call it shamanism, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> it's a mystical tradition. We don't work in, ex- in, in altered states of consciousness as shamans do or with plants or things like that. This is a tradition... Um, I suppose my role in this world now is as a nature priest. I'm connected to nature. I'm connected to spirit. And I teach other people how to reestablish that connection within themselves. It's a very much an earth-based path. Mm-hmm. And it's a very much a heart-based path. So more and more, um, I'm just now, you know, as of this past month, I've reopened my coaching and I'm taking clients again. Um, and working with people in that capacity, again, it's, it's not counseling. Um, we're not here to sort of necessarily fix anything or resolve any issues from the past, but it is a, a path of integration and deeper connection to self through being connected to the earth mm. and the stars and the sun and the moon and, and actually 
discovering the inherent medicine that is in all things, including you and me. And more and more, that's sort of my approach to all things. Like I said earlier, that I see God in all things. Um, yeah, that we can connect to the medicine of all things, that right now you're sharing your medicine with me as we have this conversation. And every day when we go outside, we can connect to the medicine of the sun. We can mm -hmm. connect to the medicine of the grass. Mm -hmm. You know, I told you that this week I'm going to the place of my birth mm -hmm. to connect to the medicine of the place that's my umbilical cord, right? That's mm -hmm. where Mama Earth popped me out. Mm -hmm. So to establish those sort of connections and I'm making offerings to Mother Earth, this is sort of my journey now. And and again, it's, it's really about self-discovery more than anything, mm -hmm. not fixing, not seeking. How can we learn to appreciate exactly where we are, not in a forced way, but a way in a way where we really embody that this is perfection, that exactly where you are right now is exactly where God has placed you because that is the key, right? Even mm -hmm. if you're in a depressed state or whatever it may, may be, that is the key to the door, mm -hmm. right? And as soon as you open that door, you find yourself on the other side, your true self, mm -hmm. you know? And, and observing and recognizing those feelings and taking them as a form of feedback, mm -hmm. you know, can open your eyes to something that may have been repressed or suppressed or sedated or ig ignored, right. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, beautiful. So turning, turning inward as opposed to, you know, looking outside, which sure. we're kind of encouraged to do. And, and also, absolutely. It's, 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 again, it's like, what is it? Trading. <laughs> I've heard this great thing also is like trading the magnifying glass for the mirror. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful thing as well. It's like we spend a lot of time trying to analyze and really get down to the details or whatever. But, you know, just sort of to see the world as a mirror and, and to stop saying like, oh, my God, this is so bad. It's not what I want. And just sort of start to ask that question, like, what is this showing me? You know, what? why am I looking into the mirror right now? What? What's what's reflected back to me? Mm -hmm. And again, the, the more I go down this path, this, this heart-based path, this really embodied path, mm -hmm. after all the spiritual, you know, logical sort of spirituality I did for so many years, reading but not practicing, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, um, just getting down into the heart and just really realizing, you know, you can't get away from the very obvious interconnectivity of all things and that mm -hmm. if you struggle, so do I, and mm -hmm. if you heal, so do I. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's powerful that like, you know, um, I admit that in working with clients, I'm, I'm feeding my soul. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like as they heal, I heal. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's great for me to be a mirror for them because that's all I am. But I love the fact that without knowing it, they're also a mirror for me. You know, mm -hmm. that's the best part of it. That's beautiful. What does your morning routine look like these days? Yeah, gosh, over the years, I've like really, you know, I've spent a lot of time on the morning routine and I've tried this and that. And uh, um, I remember at one point it was like, okay, at seven o'clock, wake up at 710, you know, do this. It was, it was something. Um, but nowadays I wake up, I usually wake up the same around seven o'clock without an alarm. I started to just do that. And um, bare minimum approach, like what we talked about earlier. So my approach to the morning Actually, my morning routine is actually it starts at night. I think that's the most powerful part of the morning routine is to turn off my screens at night to finish with just like reading with my, you know, orange, my amber book light and whatever. 
get my clothes out for the next day, kind of be prepared for the morning, you know, even set an intention sometimes for the day, the night before. But my morning routine looks like this. Um, I'm in a community where one of the requirements is an hour a day of exercise. Hmm. I do 30 minutes walking the dog as part of my exercise, which means I've got 30 minutes to exercise in the morning. So I usually wake up, I go straight to yoga. Mm -hmm. It's very important that I'm not allowed to look at my phone until after I finish my entire morning routine. Mm -hmm. I don't think anything in my life has been as profound as that in terms of how to start the day. Mm -hmm. So I wake up, the phone remains in airplane mode. I go and do yoga for a half an hour. I meditate for half an hour and then I make my breakfast and then I sit down and work. Is meditation outside or inside? Meditation has been mostly outside. There were a couple, eh, maybe almost two months where it was so cold that I couldn't. I was meditating outside even in the snow and everything, but it got mm -hmm. a little too cold where like it takes the focus away from what you're doing, right? It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't, it's not a very effective meditation if you're shivering the whole time. So just now um, we're, I'm heading back outside to do my meditations, but that's another thing. My meditation again is in the Inca tradition and it's very earth-based. So I go out um, and I put my left hand on mother earth and I put the other hand on the heart and for 30 minutes I just sit and I, there's all sorts of different meditation. I practice mindfulness meditation which means um, I watch the cars go by, as, as it were. You know, whatever thoughts come up, um, I just notice them and let them pass. So I'm not, I'm not focused on anything. It's, it's a lack of focus, this meditation. Mm. And that's what I do. I just sort of allow whatever wants to come up. And more and more, that's my practice in life. So it makes sense that that's the meditation I'm drawn to, right? This mm. practice of allowing things to come up and seeing them as they are rather than trying to judge them or alter them. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You know, my med my morning routine is very simple because it's something that I know that I can do every day. And um, again, a simple routine leads to a simple day. And I like simple living. So you're putting in about 90 minutes when it comes to exercise and meditation? Yeah. Yeah. 90 minutes a day for exercise and meditation. How do you organize your time? Hmm. Do well, you use a calendar? Oh, okay. I know that you have you have some ways of tracking by hand with, you know, how you were each day and reflecting on it. That's not necessarily like organizing your time, but it's right. part of your organizational structure and system. I see what you're saying. My systems, yeah. I work with a bullet journal, um, which means every month I, I, I set up. I use my bullet journal as my calendar, and I also use Google Calendar. Like, they, they're mirrors of each other, right? Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, my bullet journal is where I do morning and evening. I write down one thing that I'm, I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. I also have a memories page in my bullet journal. So for each day, I'll write down a couple of the highlights of the day, you know, mm -hmm. skateboarding in the park, podcast with Anthony, you know, things like that. Um, and I also have a tracker page where I track kind of the things that I'd like to stay away from, the things that I'd like to do. And I also track my mood, my stress levels and how well I slept. Um, and that's just kind of for fun to, and, and to explore like what things are sort of contributing to peace and, and a holistic health in my life and which things might not be mm -hmm. right. Um, and as far as tracking my time, I, again, I tried, you know, I've tried a few things over the years, but I tried to do something that was as simple as possible for me, which was, um, I mostly use Google calendar 
and I block out my time. So, you know, my morning routine time, which is about two hours total, is blocked out in the morning. Mm -hmm. Anything else that I have appointment wines is scheduled. And I also do this thing where um, every Friday I set up, I write down the, let's say the five tasks that I want to get done next week Mm -hmm. and I schedule them in. Mm. So if I want to write an email, Mm -hmm. I schedule myself a two hour block on Tuesday from 10 to 12 and it says write email. Mm. And the reason I started doing that is because I found as an entrepreneur, as someone who's, you know, responsible for my own time, that doesn't work very well for me. <laughs> I, you know, I have a tendency like, oh, I'll get to it whenever. You know, it's really, it, it helps for me to not only have my appointments scheduled, mm-hmm. but also the tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how my system works. At the end of, at the, end of the week on Friday, I, I go, I look and see what's still pending you know, I put the check marks in the things I've done as I do them. If anything's still pending, I write it down in the unfinished tasks section. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm building out the next week, I've, I, I take from the unfinished tasks, put them in there, mm-hmm. right? And then I add anything else that I want to add. But I'm also very, very careful because of some of the things I was saying earlier about having big vision, but not always, you know, mm-hmm. being able to ground that. I'm also very careful to, again, to kind of ask myself, what's the bare minimum I want to do this week mm-hmm. to feel that I'm successful and moving forward with my projects? Mm-hmm. And, and that seems to work well for me. I, you know, the simpler, the better in my case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your take on weed right now? The pros and the cons of it for you, for Nicholas. Um, so I took about a year and a half off of weed. And uh, almost a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago, I started smoking again. And I largely started smoking um, when I was diagnosed with Lyme disease or just Mm -hmm. before it because um, it brought me some peace, especially with the physical pain that was really difficult for a while. And thank God these days is is starting to improve a lot. Um, But my physical pain was so challenging for a while and weed was very helpful. And weed was also helpful in, you know, in creating a sense of peace when there was a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also found myself starting to smoke every day again, just like I used to when I was like just a regular old pothead. And in, in some ways it doesn't affect my life horribly. And in other ways it really, really holds me back. Mm-hmm. I found. And I think it's true with a lot of things that like, it does come down to moderation, but at the same time, some things are easier to moderate than others. You know, food is not that easy to moderate. It's highly addictive. So for certain foods like, you know, sugar, it's better for me to have a zero tolerance policy, right? Mm -hmm. Weed is also one of those things that can be very difficult to moderate, especially Mm -hmm. because it's not like, you know, it's addictive in a sense that like, you're like, oh, it's not bad though. You know, it's not like heroin addictive where your body starts to, you know, like freak Mm -hmm. out if you don't have it. So, um, I don't know whether you're asking that question because of the timing right now, but it is interesting timing that I've just returned from a two-week retreat in the woods where I was living completely disconnected from screens, technology, any of that. Um, I spent all day every day um, spending time in nature, building offerings to Mother Earth, um, meditating, playing music, reading. You know, I read mm-hmm five books in in two weeks and, you know, collections of poetry. And I was making all sorts of music. It was a really beautiful time. And I also stayed away from weed during that time. Mm -hmm. So it's been, I think, like 20 days now that I haven't smoked weed. 
Good which you. is the longest run in like a year and a half because oh. I was I started to smoke every day again. I old habits die hard, and once I started again for, I think um, maybe the maybe okay reasons why I started, but I found myself doing the whole now it's just a habit thing. Mm -hmm. So this was a great opportunity for me to reset. Um, I've been back from that trip for almost a week now, and therefore could have just gone right back to my old weed habits. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm in, a, I'm in a phase right now where I'd like to continue to not smoke, mm -hmm. to sort of experience this. It's been interesting. My dreams have been very vivid. I did go through some intense withdrawal for a few days, um, but my dreams have been very vivid. And I'm also interested now in working with my dreams more and more, mm -hmm. remembering them and sort of doing some dream work. Um, as like a bridge to the subconscious mind? As a bridge mind. to the subconscious mind. And weed gets in the way of that. There's mm -hmm. no question. It's well known that weed interferes with the dreaming mechanism. It almost makes you slightly dreamy throughout the day so that at night your body's like doesn't really need to turn that thing on, you know? Mm. So I more and more believe that dreams are powerful and working with my dreams is proving that every mm. day. Um, so yeah, I'm at right now, I'm more interested in putting a few more days at least, you know, in this streak that I've built. Mm. And, um, you know, I imagine because I do enjoy weed, I do enjoy, um, gosh, I don't have any vices anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I stopped drinking alcohol a couple of years ago. And like, I really, you know, for me, weed is like, you can call it a vice. Um, in many ways, weed is still like, you know, it's connecting with nature to me. I, I have respect for the plant, but I've also been disrespectful to the plant before mm. and I've abused the plant before. So right now I'm kind of interested in keeping this path that I'm going. Mm -hmm. And also um, I'm recommitted to not allowing weed to become something that I do more than a couple of times a week, mm. more as a, as a ceremonial thing to connect mm -hmm. um, with some part of me mm -hmm. rather than just an everyday thing like it was mm -hmm. becoming. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in God or a higher power? Sure. I don't think it's a belief. I don't think it comes down to belief. I think it's an inherent fact that everything is alive. Everything vibrates and therefore everything is spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I believe that we suffer from an externalization of God. The same mm -hmm. way I was kind of talking about the whole self or other approach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, God to me is, okay, God is the wool. And you and I are the sweater. <laughs> Everything is the sweater, so to speak. So to me, God is the material. God is the substratum um, because of which everything exists. It's the material that makes up everything. So I don't believe that you or me or a stone or Bill Gates <laughs> are, any less, are any less or more God than the other. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, if if... I don't necessarily see, the, you know, a creator type God maybe doesn't resonate as much as me rather than a creation God, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, it's for me, it's God is is everywhere. There is only God here. Um, and so that sort of like continuously remembering that and continuously remembering also that like, I'm not even who I think I am. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's the me I think I am. And then there's the watcher mm -hmm. and it's like, wait, which, which one am I? You know, cause there's, 
you know, if I say right now, like, oh, for example, if I say something like I'm, I'm ignorant, I don't know. Mm -hmm. it's like, how do you know you don't know, right? There, which is the you that knows that you don't know? <laughs> and, and, and not to get too heady here, but when we explore consciousness and we explore God from a more from a more Eastern perspective, you could say, or even from a Western perspective, from a Native American perspective, for example, or an indigenous perspective, you know, to me, God is that thing that is in all things. And it's because of God that you and I exist. It's the thing that, you know, makes the trees blow in the wind and the, moves my mouth mm -hmm. and makes the waves go and travel to your eardrum and all the stuff that happens. Like that's all God to me. So absolutely, I, I, I don't see that it necessarily comes down to a belief but just what comf what words people are comfortable using. Mm -hmm. Some people want to call God science. Some mm -hmm. people want to call God the creator of the world. And some people want to call God pure consciousness, you know, that mm -hmm. which we are made of. Um, to me, at the end of the day, words will always fall short. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe it's a belief-based thing. I just think mm -hmm. it's a fact of nature that here we are, Something's something mysterious is making this all tick, mm -hmm. you know, and I and I won't claim to know it. And a lot of people claim to know it. And God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> when you want to feel more one with God or closer to God, what are some things that help? So, again, I think it comes from a misunderstanding in some ways, when we talk about feeling, I don't think you are ever not one with God, or I don't think you are ever disconnected from God. That being said, I do think there's times where we feel that presence more and more. Or we feel connected to that presence more and more, like you said. For me, it's absolutely uh, the biggest ones would be, you know, the thing that you can do anywhere would be meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, obviously getting out into nature, obviously being among the elements mm -hmm. um, and removing input, removing external input in our lives. You know, all of the sensory stuff, like all of the no like, you know, going back to what I said, like I dream better and more intensely when I don't use my screens as much. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like I'm aware of my subconscious and all of my complexity and my beauty more when I'm not hearing other people talk to me about like what works for them or doesn't work for them or how mm -hmm. I'm broken and I need fixing. And like, you know, here's how you can manifest God, Ugh. you know, all that kind of stuff is like, it's constant input. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's like, I think silence is a big thing. Just like allowing all the crazy voices inside of my head to have the stage, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, guys, come on up on stage and yell about, you know, some of them are like, yeah, peace and love. And some of them are like, I want to kill everyone. And like giving, giving the microphone to all those different voices mm -hmm. kind of allows me to feel connected, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but really it is one of the more powerful things. And like, it's become a bit of a cliche these days to like tell people that God is in nature and, and not in the urban areas. You know, I don't necessarily think that's true, but there's no question that for the longest part of our history, we have lived connected to nature. Mm -hmm. We have lived amongst nature, I should say, rather than connected to it. We have lived among it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the most powerful thing for me is like almost every day I try to get out and go mm -hmm. for a walk. And if the weather's good, I'm putting my bare feet on the grass, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm looking up at the sun. 
You know, mm-hmm. even if my eyes are closed, like feeling the sun on my body, feeling how it warms you, feel how it literally gives us life, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and also in this, in this earth-based path that I walk, um, I spend a lot of time connecting to all of the different elements and the four winds and the different, you know, the different animals that are associated with different aspects of life and different healing. You know, I ask the puma to give me strength. I ask the serpent to help cleanse me, mm-hmm. you know, connecting to... Yeah, like not killing spiders, dude. Sorry to get all hippie, but like not killing spiders is a great way to connect to nature. Mm-hmm. As to like, whoa, look at that creepy, crawly, kind of like weird looking God that's crawling around in my living room right now. Mm-hmm. Like, thanks for showing up. What do you have to teach me? You know, mm-hmm. the more I pay attention, the more I sort of see signs, you know, like I, I see I see hawks fly by when I'm having a certain thought. I'm like, whoa, that's cool. I feel like that's a vision now, you know? Mm -hmm. Some people might say, that's just a hawk flying by. But for me, it's like, yeah, that's God flying by, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's your love language? What are they? There's- Giving gifts. Gifts, words of affirmation, physical touch. um, Quality time. Quality time. And uh, butt stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely butt stuff. What's the fifth one? Um, I'm drawing a blank on the fifth one. It's a good question, too. I I think I remember doing a quiz a couple of years back, too. I believe, for me, it's uh, probably quality time and words of affirmation. Yeah. Probably words of affirmation even more. Yeah. Um... Yeah. You know, I, I, I realize that we're all a combination of all of them, right? You know, mm-hmm. but I think for me, it's like, yeah, quality time and, and a little bit of like verbal support because I'm a verbal person. I'm a communicative person. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the gifts a lot, but I'm like, I'm one of those people that like likes to own as few things as possible and doesn't really care about material stuff so much. So... You got to give me like a real special gift for me to like care so much about the gift or whatever, you know, right, for me, it's right. about the action that someone gave me something. Um, yeah. Anyway, someone shows me that they, if you give me a gift that is unique to me, yeah, then I know you love me because you're paying attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you give me a tie, it's like, what? I don't, have you ever seen me wear a tie? You know? Yeah. But if you give me fantasy novel or you know something involving you know skateboarding or something you know spiritual or whatever then i'm like okay you're paying attention you know well you're crushing this interview bro what about you what about you thank you (laughs) what's your uh thanks for the words of affirmation (laughs) what are your love languages uh quality time and physical touch Mm. yeah in that order okay yeah um how would you describe your relationship with MC? MC Mari Carmen, my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, she's my greatest teacher. She's my greatest teacher. She's my mirror. Um, and she she teaches me about love. She teaches me about love. I. Um, my whole life, I didn't know what love was until I met her. And um, I still struggle in relationship. So I, uh, 
you know, I, I like to avoid labels as much as possible. And at the same time, I can recognize they're, they're helpful sometimes, you know, um, and it's, it's come into my awareness in the past few years that I have a pattern of relationship anxiety. Some people call it relationship OCD, but, um, I've always been a questioner. I've always been a philosopher and I have a tendency to not only question all the things I'm doing or the relationships that I'm in quite often, but I also have a tendency to kind of like turn tail and run a little bit when things get challenging emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that might, might go back to my upbringing in some ways. I've, I've done that too. Yeah. I think, I think it's, I think it's more common than we're led to believe. I think it's probably pretty common among men, you know, it's, it's funny in the relationship anxiety communities, I find more women, but I think that's just because women are more willing to be honest. And that's why <laughs> men would never look at themselves and say that like, Oh, I might have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's probably pretty common for men too, that like, I mean, let's be honest in all sorts of ways. It's reinforced to us that like women are there for us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, you could just turn on porn and watch, you know, some some girl get everything that you think you need mm-hmm. without any of the tough stuff, you know, without any of the challenges or without any of the emotion or anything like that. There's all sorts of ways that things are reinforced in our society. So um, I bring up like the fact that I, I struggle to this day, I, I should say, with, you know, a little bit of rela- relationship anxiety and questioning a thing like that. As a segue in saying that my girlfriend, my fiance now, is aware of that. She knows that. Mm-hmm. It's something I tell her and I share with her. And to share that with someone and have them stick around, right, mm-hmm. is I think one of the more beautiful things that anyone's ever done for me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and I would like to say, in all honesty, I've given her a good amount of reasons over the past three and a half years of our relationship to turn tail and run. But mm-hmm. she sees the true me, mm-hmm. and I see the, tr- the, the true her. And in that sense, we're very committed and loving to each other, and we continue to learn a lot from each other. Mm-hmm. And we continue to lean into the difficult conversations. And there are many. I think there's, I think relationships are tough long-term relationships they have their challenges you know what i mean but i think they can be even harder for two highly conscious individuals Mm. which we are Mm -hmm. you know and we both are we both value honesty above all else we value loyalty above all else we both we value integrity and authenticity and showing up exactly as we are Mm -hmm. so i could never be anything other than i am and i have to tell her that you know Mm -hmm. i have to share with her some and so her being present for me throughout some of my struggles has brought me to the fact to to a point where I was able to break through one of my biggest fears my entire life, which was commitment, mm-hmm. the idea of committing to a person and to be able to propose to her. You know, I cried my eyes out when I proposed to her and I still do, not just because of the love that I feel for her and I'm excited to have a life with her, mm-hmm. but because she helped me break through my biggest fear, honestly, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've, I love women and I love spending time with women. And I'm also afraid of like, you know, 
committing to one and I'm afraid of committing to one thing in my life period you know I like I'm eclectic and I'm nervous about oh you know the FOMO thing you know mm-hmm. what does this mean or what if it's wrong or what if I break her heart or what if she breaks my heart mm-hmm. all these kind of questions you know all those fear questions um and so her relationship with me is like this it's just this ultimate where everything is okay everything about myself is okay and accepted and appreciated and loved mm-hmm. and it helps me learn more how to have that same approach to me mm-hmm. and that same approach to her and as much as possible extend that to everyone else mm-hmm. you know to all the other you know little little bits and pieces of god that are out there you know that i that i come in contact with mm-hmm. um i'm grateful to her i'm grateful to her in a way that is very special i would say it's very unique and special do you want to have kids Nah, I don't know. We uh, we both are in the I don't know category on this. We both go back and forth. There's times where I think about being a father and I think about being the type of father that I want to be and I think I could be, mm-hmm. especially as I'm more aware of um, of what I think a lot of kids are not given. And maybe even I wasn't given in some ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still undecided on that. Mm-hmm. We're both still undecided on that. I go back and forth and some days I want to and there's other days where I'm like not at all. I'd rather just I'd rather just me and her have our life, you mm-hmm. know. And um Yeah, I could see a lot of I could see a lot of situations where I could have multiple children without ac- actually having children. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like working with children in some capacity or working mm-hmm. just with people. And having that sort of, you know, where I am a guide to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. Time will tell. What song or movie scene makes you cry without fail? You mentioned the the scene with Mufasa, so I'm just for the listeners going to take that off the table. <laughs> um, there's probably a lot with movies. I, I'm so, it's been years since I've watched television or movies. We were watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia the other day, and I was mm-hmm. I was so excited. It's, a, it's my favorite show, but it was the first time I'd watched TV in like two years probably. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit less connected to that. But music is, I cry often with music. Um, I'm at a point now where I cry at least once a day. And, and most often I'm crying blissful tears. Sometimes I just look out at the trees and just cry. It's like I'm really, I really feel a lot of emotion through moving through me these days. But as far as music goes, um, Roxy music, more than this. That's a great one that makes me cry a lot. Mm. Um, I'm not familiar. It's a great track. Um, Edvard Elger. Um, the classical composer has a song called, uh, what is it called? Variation on a theme. That's a very beautiful song. You know, classical music makes me cry a lot. Um, and some of the tracks, especially off the newest album by the tallest man on earth, Mm. the tallest man on earth makes me cry a lot. He's a very, very beautiful singer songwriter. Um, and yeah, very powerful. I've just started making a, uh, a playlist called criers. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I've only got a couple of tracks on there, but if you ask me in a few weeks, I'll have I'll have even more answers for you. But but music touches me. Art touches me. Poetry touches me. Music touches me. Um, and just the art of nature touches me. Yeah. 
Do you have any off the top of your head? Criers? Cats in the Cradle. Okay. Cat Stevens. Yeah. That one's that one's a classic crier for me. I may have worn it off, but uh that one that one for sure was a big one. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I used to cry a lot when um Atreyu's horse died and I, I don't know if it's the pits of despair or whatever. It's the quicksand and the yeah. never ending story. Yeah. That scene where he loses his horse was that that would get me when they'd shoot old yeller. When they have to oh. shoot Old Yeller at the end of of, of the movie because he's got rabies. I never saw from, it, believe it or not, but I'm familiar with the oh, scene. It's classic. I know the scene. Yeah, classic. Yeah, he he jumps in and saves them from a wolf, um, and protects the boys who he had this really close relationship with, and then consequently gets rabies, uh, yeah. and they have to put him down. You know that that type of like pioneer yeah, yeah, yeah. life. If we could have, uh, if if we could go on a dream trip together. Where would we go and what would we do there? Gosh, that's tough to say. I mean, I would imagine we'd, we'd work it out together, right? Let's work it out together. Where would we go? What would be some of the places? you? I know some places that really matter to you and that you, you've you wanted to share, I think, with me or that you've wanted, you know, just to go back. Like I know Mykonos is a, is a big spot for you that you really yeah. enjoy. I'd like to see... I can tell you from my side of things, I would like to share with you some of the places I've been, the experiences I've had. The first one, yeah, I told you how much I love Ethiopia. Um, I'd love an opportunity. You did come to visit Egypt with the family, but like things were different then. Yeah. Um, things were very different then in a few ways. I won't get into it, but off the top of my head, I would really like to share the south of Spain with you. That experience I had where I spent three months there. I also met Mari Carmen there. Yeah. Um, and it's just a freaking fun place. You know, I, I imagine I might break my rule about drinking alcohol maybe once or twice while we were there because it's just such a fun place to, to party. Um, but also I think it's up up your alley. So I would like to, ex- to share some of my experience in, in Malaga and surrounding area with you. Yeah. What about you? Cool. On your end, I think first and foremost, I'm excited about North Carolina. Okay, yeah, especially like in the summer when it's when it's so green and like the amount of life density is almost rainforest level. We'll, we'll be there in two weeks, right? Yeah, it'll yeah. be my first time seeing this place that you've fallen in love with. So yeah, yeah. you're right. I'm excited about that. Yeah, that and and then um, and then from there, there's a lot of options. Yeah, like the Greek islands, the south uh, south of Spain. I've I've got a little bit of interest in Turkey. Mm. You know, you've said some fond things about Turkey's Istanbul awesome. and parts of Turkey. Yeah, um, those ones. Those ones jump out. You know, I am I'm interested at some point. I've heard a lot of good things from people about Florinopolis, this island off the coast of Brazil. I've okay. heard it's a, it's a really special place. Okay. And um, yeah, many Portuguese people. It's sort of like the their Mykonos or okay. Ibiza. You I've know never what I mean? But it. it's supposed Sounds to be Greek. this like yeah, the kind of kind of magical beach beach destination. Mm. Um, so that's, that's interesting to me. Those ones kind of jump out. Yeah. I would, I would, I want to add Mexico to the list. So, yeah. you know, my girlfriend, my fiance now, I have to get used to that. Yeah. Um, fiance. Fiance. My fiance. Yeah. 
my betrothed. <laughs> um, Sayulita too. In so yeah, I was gonna say Mexico because she's from there, and there's just I, I really love Mexico. I think it's such a special place with a wide variety. You know, that's another thing. It's a huge country. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't realize how big it is. You know, because yeah. maps are very confusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just such. It's got such a wide variety of different atmospheres and cultures and foods, and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you'd love Sayulita and some of those kind of chill, hippie beach places or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I think you'd also love a lot of other places we can go and visit. And and yeah, it's a special place with special people. That'd be fun. We should put down some ideas and make make something happen. Heck yeah. Um, If you could have a billboard anywhere, where would it be and what would it say? Oh, gosh. Could I put it? Could I put it like on the moon, and so that we can see it every time we look up? I would need more concrete proof that we've been to the moon. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say something. Um, I don't know where I would put it necessarily. I'd, I mean, I'd want it to be somewhere where where everyone all in the world could see it. But I realize that's not you know. I don't know. I'd pick the. I'd pick the busiest highway in the States, I guess, and I'd put up a billboard that said, love one another. <laughs> what about you? Um, Times Square. Okay. And uh, lead with love. Okay. That's good, too. Um, what advice would you give yourself at three ages? Nicholas at 15? Nicholas at 25, Nicholas at 35. Um, At all three ages, I would give myself the advice, relax, it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) (laughs) And that will be true for any other age you ask me going on in the future. Yeah. What about you? Anthony at 15. Um... Have more fun. Okay. I was I was so focused on soccer and getting better, and I I took a lot far too serious. Mm. I, 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 parallels there, right? Anthony at twenty five, um, don't have so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that. I get that. I might say the same to myself in my twenties. And then Anthony at thirty five. Um, what about Anthony now? Because you were asking me about basically now. So ask yourself about now. Yeah, An- Anthony now would be um, build things that matter to you and are not so uh, necessarily concrete or carbon or external uh, reflections of success. Mm but more things that um, build things that spiritually uplift myself and others, Mm. you know, kind of working a little bit more in the, the soul, the spirit, the eternal realm. Yeah. Um, Like that. What do you believe is the biggest challenge humanity faces today? The manipulation of data 
the collusion between government and big tech. And private interests in many forms. Sure. Um, the push towards an inorganic timeline that most of the collective seems to have chosen and accepted, um, which includes vaccinations, unnecessary, potentially harmful vaccinations, um, integrating with artificial intelligence, transhumanism and such. Um, and the continued colonization of our mind and soul and land and everything, patriarchy and white supremacy. What historical figure do you most identify with? That's good. It's really good because, you know, there's a lot of heroes that you read about. And when you grow up and you read a little bit more, you get deeper into history, you find that um, a lot of the things you were told about certain people were not true. You know, mm -hmm. we're really stretched. Mm -hmm. So... Here's a controversial one, but it's what's coming to mind. I identify with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You're looking more and more like him. <laughs> <laughs> um, in being wildly misunderstood and appropriated to fit people's agendas and a lot of people missing some of the messages that he was really sharing. Mm -hmm. um, I am an anarchist and a revolutionary at heart. And I think that's why I connect most with, with people like Jesus. Yes, Jesus was a force of Christic light and Christ consciousness. And Jesus was also a revolutionary, right? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, as a metaphor... I came to bring the sword. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that my, my, my goals are to build rather than to destroy in this life. Mm -hmm. But um, you know how you burn down a prairie to make it, you know, to make it more suitable for growth and to feed the soil and whatnot? Mm -hmm. That needs to happen on a grand scale mm -hmm. in our world. There's a lot that needs to be dismantled peacefully or otherwise. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I, I, the revolutionary spirit lives on within me stronger and stronger each day, especially as um, someone who doesn't rock the boat, someone who has been a people pleaser, someone who has bit my tongue numerous times and not spoken the truth. Um, out of fear of being misunderstood or fear of being, you know, seen as someone who's not love and light and more about destruction than building and all these, all these things that, all these projections that could be thrown on me and will continue to be thrown on me because that's how the world works, right? People do that, we do that. Um, but the revolutionary spirit of Jesus and any other figures who wanted to burn it all down, mm -hmm. <laughs> those are the ones that I most resonate with now. Mm -hmm. And there's these, you know, I, I, these stories of Jesus 
where, you know, you quoted that example of bringing the sword, but there's him storming into these places where they were putting people in debt, you know, through usury and, sure. and, and some of these practices that were warned against in the Bible and, you know, flipping tables and like, he wasn't just uh, an Om Shanti Shanti, everything that, you know, only focus on love and light type person. Um, he he did what's right, what he believed to be right, yeah. and, and what he, he believed to be the human embodiment of God's word. And he was integrous until his dying breath. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say Jesus came to die for our sins. That's a popular, you know, there are some branches of Christianity or most we could say that, that really subscribe to that belief. And I can appreciate that belief, but I think one part that's missing there is that Jesus wasn't aware of that. Jesus wasn't told that. God sent Jesus in the true story, right? God mm -hmm. sent Jesus to die for our sins, so to speak. Um, and Jesus had a hell of a time accepting that, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus broke down and fell before God and, and had a really difficult time. And until his dying breath, his final words were, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that's such a powerful thing because we, we have a tendency to focus on is like, yeah, Jesus knew what he was here for and he was on board with it. And he, he didn't have that human aspect of him. He truly, he truly was the spark of the divine here on earth. And I like to point out that Jesus was a regular guy in some sense that struggled and struggled to accept his mission. And even at the end of it, like felt like really was honest about the challenge that he was going through. And I think I'm, I'm honest about that challenge too. I think, you know, it's, there's a part of me that can easily recognize that spirit lives in all things. And that's just the fact of the matter. But there's also that other part of me that goes, but why does spirit allow babies to die innocently and all that kind of stuff? Mm. That's so for me, Jesus was like the ultimate embodiment of what it means to be human, you know, mm. to like, yeah, no one has a hundred percent faith all the time. You know, talk to mm. your really like you have a friend who's like really a strong, faithful Mormon Christian, right? You know, mm. ask him if he has struggles and tribulations, you know, ask him if he doubts his faith sometimes. You mm -hmm. know, any honest person will tell you yes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another cool thing about Jesus is like, yeah, he was flipping the tables and saying, What is this bullshit? And he was struggling with with whether or not to even have faith in this mission that he had been brought here for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that gives me a little bit more peace too. It's like, all right, if, if he can do that and, and have, you know, the world's biggest religion, you know, develop after him, mm -hmm. then maybe I can also be myself and still make it out. Okay. <laughs> if you could have dinner or drinks with one person alive or dead, who would it be and why? Jane Goodall. Mm. Is that gorillas in the mist? Yeah. 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 Why? Why her? Um, you know, again, that's another question where I think years ago I wrote out a list of people I'd like to have dinner with. And, and, and the more I read about a few of them, I was like, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but to me, Jane, you know, I'll admit I love people, but there's this like real part of me that like loves animals a little bit more. <laughs> um, 
And Jane Goodall, like, I don't know her her work and her dedication to her work, but like, um, there's a everyone can love animals from afar, and it, but not many of us can accept animals the way they are, right? Even mm. with our dogs, we love our dogs, but our dog starts barking, and we're like, shut shut up. <laughs> Shut up. I want mm-hmm. silence. You know, be, do what I want. No. Be, yeah, no. Be more what I want you to be, right? You mm-hmm. know, the dog wants to go this way on the walk and you're like, get out of here, dog. You know, come my way. We're going this way, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's something very beautiful about the fact that, like, she was one of those people who worked with animals in a scientific way. You know, she was studying and learning and, and observing by letting these creatures be exactly as they are. Mm-hmm. And in a detached way, observing and making notes on it, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you see the love bonds that are developed with her and these animals through that. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, that's a lesson of how to work with animals because I am very guilty of of loving animals, but also expecting them to be the way I want them to be. Mm -hmm. But it's also the same with people, right? Mm -hmm. I'm also guilty of loving people, but also... Well, if you have my opinion, I love you even more, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's it's a really special thing for me that she was able to just be amongst these creatures and let them be who they were. Mm-hmm. And you watch these love bonds form as a result of that. Mm-hmm. That's special. That's special to me. It reminds me of the quote that you probably remember that I don't from Ram Das, where he's talking about the trees mm-hmm. and, you know, how we don't want the, you know, the, we, we see the trees and we see the trees that are bent and crooked. And, you know, we don't wish that those trees were different. We just, yeah. you know, recognize that something made it that way. Something happened that made the tree that way. And we accept it rather yeah. than feeling this need to impose our expectations. Yeah, yeah. This tree would be cooler if it bent left rather than right. Right. What's something you believe that's controversial or that other people think is like crazy or nuts? Um, and we're on the home stretch here. Yeah, I believe that what's going on right now with COVID is is the biggest, probably the biggest lie and manipulation in history, mm-hmm. um, and is clearly being used. Um, the things that are in place now were in place, and you can go and look this up before COVID even happened. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about the fact that they were doing war games and they were, you know, months before the first case of COVID, they were doing simulations of basically the exact same thing that's happening with COVID. Mm -hmm. But you could also go back to the first quarter of 2019 when the EU commission was rolling out its future plan for mandatory vaccines. Mm -hmm. And you got to wonder what the heck they were doing in in the early 2019 starting that plan Mm -hmm. when COVID didn't even come out till a year later. So... It's not as controversial among my audience because of these echo chambers that they forced us to create on social media where the algorithm has us speaking to people that mostly already agree with us and anyone who disagrees gets angry and unfollows. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I think, clearly controversial overall. You know, I even had a difficult conversation with two friends the other day, one of them who disagrees with my take on vaccines but still supports medical freedom. Mm-hmm. And another one who thinks that I am um, dangerous because mm-hmm. I don't believe in taking this vaccine, which is not a vaccine. It's a it's a new thing. Mm-hmm. And it's for, yeah, I don't want, I'm not interested in being the control in this experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I made it through both of those conversations just fine. And I was willing to hear them and they were willing to hear me as well. And, you know, our friendship is intact and that's important to me as much as possible. Some people I believe are meant to drop off in certain ways, but I'm not going to go and create that if I don't need to, right? My, mm-hmm. my goal is inclusion and tolerance. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, the majority goes, the collective um, gets its information from certain places, being the TV, basically. Mm-hmm. And they've chosen a path based on that. And um, I think it's very, very dangerous. And I think it's possible that um, I think that the collective is choosing division and segregation. And it very well might be possible that people like me are pushed out of society um, because of our beliefs or worse. And um, I I certainly hope the tides will turn on that in some Mm -hmm. way. We've talked about how I struggle sometimes with having faith that the right thing is going to happen or that this is we're going to have to adjust to a kind of dark world for a while. Um, But yeah, I suppose that's the most controversial opinion I have these days is that um, I won't get into all the little details of it, but at the very least, this whole thing is being used to push agendas that have been in place for a very long time. Neoconservative agendas that have been in place since at least, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can see how the nine 11 and, and some of these other things were, were leading to this. You know, what scares me the most as a former history teacher is to watch the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I see the opinion pieces that talk about how um, people that are, you know, not interested in taking experimental drugs are dangerous or akin to domestic terrorists. Mm-hmm. I see um, the for your safety. This is all for your safety. Mm-hmm. I see for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And I see all these terms that you could easily translate to German and it would have been said in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And you can translate it to Russian and it was said in Stalinist Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, yeah, I've always seen how history was cyclical. I just thought enough of us knew about what happened in the Holocaust that it wouldn't happen again. Mm. And what I'm seeing now is there's a very real possibility where some people um, are going to receive, um, are going to be tracked and traced by the same company that tracked and traced the Jews in World War II Germany, mm-hmm. that being IBM. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's a secret or something about you that most people don't know? Um, I get very angry and I have a very bad temper sometimes. And I've, I've, I've worked on my temper for a long time. I've worked with my temper, I should say, for a long time. And I think I'm, I have less tendency towards extreme anger than I used to. In many ways, but I'm still, I still have a lot of anger. Even the, the thing we were just talking about is something that makes me very angry. And my anger might appear differently than it used to appear. <laughs> um, and I use it as a tool more often now than get sucked into it. But I do notice that a lot of people seem to think, and I don't know whether I've created this image of myself in some way, Um, but a lot of people think, you know, 
that I'm a, a peaceful, compassionate, loving person. And I get a lot of comments about that. And I say to them, oh, I am, but I'm also angry. <laughs> um, and maybe that's something that I should show more often. You know, I don't like to play the should game, but, you know, again, I believe in integrity. So I'd like to share I'd like to let people know that, that I struggle. I, I don't struggle. I'm angry. I get angry, right? Mm -hmm. And that I get sad sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that um, I'm not perfect or all healed and that's why I heal other people or anything like that. I'm so tired of the marketing, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Hey, I used to be an asshole just like you, and now I'm better. Come buy my course. <laughs> yeah. I'll teach you how to suck less. You know what I mean? I'm so tired of that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a very real person, and so I think that's that's something a lot of people don't know about me, and might not know about a lot of the people that they they follow on social media or a lot of their celebrity heroes or whatever. It's like, guess what? We're real people too. Yeah. Um, some of us are more willing to show it. You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you could sing one song on American Idol, what would it be? When the music's over by the Doors, <laughs> and I would scare everybody out of there. <laughs> I do a really good Jim Morrison impression, especially the screaming, <laughs> and I would just rip it apart, and uh, yeah, I would just tear the place down. <laughs> nice, it's a good pick. <laughs> Favorite purchase under a hundred bucks? Purchase under a hundred bucks. Oof. Um, my skateboard. My That's skateboard. Yeah. What kind of skateboard is it? It's a birdhouse. Well, I so I have a birdhouse skateboard. I just got a new one that I haven't broken out yet because I'm kind of like waiting for my, my first one to die. It's pretty close. I got razor tail on the back there where it's like real sharp from, from doing manuals and having the tail hit the bottom sometimes. So it's all sharp and the wood's starting to chip there. So any day now, but... um. Yeah, that, you know, it co I don't know how much it costs, maybe 80 bucks or something like that. But, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, you can have a lot of fun on a skateboard for a, a, for almost no money. You yeah. know what I mean? It's a one-time purchase and you just take decent care of it and go out and have fun. And those are the things that are the best for me. Yeah. What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to our trip. Um next week or two weeks from now to go to North Carolina. I'm looking forward to, yeah, I'm looking forward to my relationship with my girlfriend, with my fiance. I'm looking forward to seeing that continue to grow and to continue to grow through it. You know, I touched on that earlier, but it's, it's amazing how much growth Look, I'll put it this way, and I'm also going to use it as a plug for like anybody who's interested in working with me. <laughs> it's amazing how much growth can happen in just a safe container, you know, in just like a comfortable, safe, non-judgmental container. Mm -hmm. And again, I feel like the tears coming up right now when I think about just what she has provided me with as a person, not, not as a partner, but as a friend. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, for the first time in my life, I have a relationship where I would first describe it as a friendship, mm -hmm. you know, and then say that like, yeah, I'm also attracted to her and we have good sex and all the, you know, those things. But to have a foundation of friendship mm -hmm. of what we have right now and to see how much growth I've done through that. Mm -hmm. um, I've, 
it's easy to kind of leave her out when I talk about my work over the past few years working with emotion and allowing emotion to move through me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, I had and still have, and we all do, the masculine wounding, you know, and I have the guards around my heart, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm able to connect with women in a loving way and a flirty way and all that until there's any sort of, you know, any sort of real vulnerability there. And then the walls come up real hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, it'd be easy to sort of leave out her role, but I know deep down how much of an impact her presence, her steady presence and loving, peaceful, safe presence in my life mm-hmm. has just allowed me to flourish, has allowed me to be me and has allowed me to tap into this well of emotion and this mm-hmm. well of really deep, powerful love, like for me and her and the world mm-hmm. that I don't, I truly don't believe I would have tapped into otherwise. Mm-hmm. Or again, that's a ridiculous thing to say, because what do I know about the future, right? Mm-hmm. All I can say is so far in my life, I have not been able to tap into the immense grounded masculine love that is in me. You know, to be able to be the safe container, the safe masculine container mm-hmm. for the feminine to flow fle- freely through, mm-hmm. you know, and learning to hold that space for me, learning to be the masculine for my feminine mm-hmm. and to be it for her as she is it for me. That's a powerful thing. So, again, it, it really comes down to like there's a lot of external things we can do. There's a lot of the stuff I mentioned about breaking it down to simplicity, you know, for healing and doing the, the quote bare minimum that we are ready to do and able to do to really commit to. But nothing beats a container. Mm-hmm. Nothing beats being held and mm-hmm. being safe to be held and like however we are at any given moment mm-hmm. and sort of express that all out. And, you know, I'll just sit there and like, okay, good. Now that Now that you feel safe and now that you're comfortable and now that you're ready to be you fully – where are we going to go with this, right? Let's create an action plan and do a little accountability and I'll walk alongside you. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I suppose she's she's intru- she's influenced my personal healing and she's also influenced the work that I'm, I'm able to do with other people. Did you guys intentionally postpone having sex when you first got together? Because I'm interested because one of the patterns that I don't think served me in relationships was as soon as that opportunity presented itself, I would, you know, jump on it. Yeah. And, and and I think that psychologically perhaps prevented me really developing a level of friendship Mm -hmm. in some relationships that would have been a more sturdy foundation, you know, and perhaps resulted in more longevity and deeper connections. So I was just kind of curious because you mentioned that friendship, if there was any intention there and if you guys delayed a physical connection at all. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I've thought about that a lot too. Like just what is what is the best approach? And I don't believe there is one, but is that a good approach? I've heard that idea. Um, I guess we did unintentionally because we met um, 
we met and then the second time we met we like you know met at a party and we kissed and that was that um but then we started talking over a period of time where she was she's mexican she was still living in spain and i had come back to the states and we were chatting a little bit it started all of a sudden um like a few months after we kissed, you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden we were chatting more. And then she went back to Mexico. And by the time she went back to Mexico, we had chatted enough and built enough of a strong connection where I went to visit her in Mexico. Mm. And we had sex that first night, I believe, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I hope her mom's not listening to this or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but so, no, we didn't un- we didn't intentionally, but we we were building that connection. Mm-hmm. And of course, the the drive to you know physically connect was there that whole time or whatever. And you know, we we were you know doing a little bit of stuff on on Zoom or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, we didn't we didn't hold off intentionally. But I do think it's very possible that that helped to build a strong foundation of friendship. I wouldn't say it's necessary by any means, but I think being, I think, you know, again, awareness is really a good place to start with anything. And I think having that awareness that you have those patterns mm-hmm. um, is a powerful thing for, for any man. Right. And, and to be also aware of like really in our society, we're told that something is love which is really infatuation, right? And mm-hmm. we associate like longing. We confuse longing and love, right? Mm-hmm. And, and more and more, like a lot of people aren't going to like to hear this because especially in like sort of the new age community these days, there's that whole, um, there's this whole approach to life that's like, it's either a fuck yes or a no. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, that's, I've, I've identified that as harmful, toxic thinking. That's black or white thinking, and it ignores the beautiful complexity and the nuance of life, mm-hmm. right? I think there's, um, yeah, that, that, you know, you should be crazy passionate all the time about your partner or this or that and whatever. And again, to me, you know, if you look at the root of the word passion, if you look up what the word passion means, it's strife man it's struggle it's this kind of desperate longing you know we we think passion like follow your passions passion doesn't mean what we think it means it doesn't mean something you really enjoy or whatever Mm. it means that thing that you like obsess over and long for or whatever and like that's not a good long-term approach that's i've had passionate love before Mm. and it's fucked me up (laughs) you know so now it's like i again learning to sort of have that foundation of what they call oatmeal love you know, which is like sounds a little bit less sexy, but at the same time, it's like, what? Yeah, it, maybe it's not eating cake every day, but have you tried eating cake every day? You know, <laughs> do that for a few days, let alone for a lifetime. You know, mm-hmm. and you'll find out that it's horribly harmful and unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And so, I think for me, it's like, yeah, having a strong foundation of friendship is is important, however it happens. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that you need to hold off on sex necessarily for it. But I could certainly see that being a powerful practice, especially mm-hmm. if you recognize that, like, my whole life, my personal experiences and high school experience and American Pie and all that kind of stuff and, and Hollywood, you mm-hmm. know, what's Hollywood, man? It's like every movie is about two people who meet. They spend the next 90 minutes going through this desperate struggle to reach each other, one or the other or both. And then in the last of the movie, they, you know, the last scene of the movie, they have sex and the Counting Crows song plays, mm-hmm. right? And you're just supposed to assume that it's all wonderful from there on, you know? Mm. So, yeah, if you're going to spend your life with someone, you're going to have to be good friends 
especially mm-hmm. knowing that, that you're both going to get old and wrinkly and, you know, things are going to stop working and whatnot, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, again, that's not to say that I don't feel passionate towards my fiance. That's not to say that I'm not very turned on sometimes and I just want to have sex with her. Like, oh my God, you look so good, you know? Mm-hmm. But there's there's this like, yeah, there's this thing that matters more, which is like right now she's upstairs and she's not feeling well mm. and I want to take care of her. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's what matters more. And it would be the same with a close friend. It's like, what can I do for you? You know, mm-hmm. just like my buddy when I was 16 and I had surgery, he's like, hey, I'm going to bring you some comic books. Mm. You know, that's that's what love is to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, my God, I can't wait. And in mm-hmm. my experience as a man, almost every time I've been desperate to have sex with a girl, I've just felt like so turned on where I just can't wait, whatever. And I do it. I'm, I'm often out right afterwards. Mm. I'm often like, oh, that was what I that was it. That was the feeling. You know what I mean? And so if mm-hmm. you find that you do that and like you wake up the next day and she's next to you and you're like, you're cool with that, you still want her around, <laughs> then I think you got a, you got a good thing going. <laughs> if you were on an island, we're going to kind of land this plane. We got last, last two questions. Sure. If you were on an island and could only bring three things, what would you bring? I'd bring an instrument. So I, I, I'd probably bring a guitar. Is there a skate park on this island? <laughs> Let's say no. Okay. Right? I mean, there could, there could be a skate park. I mean, I would love to bring a source of music to listen to. Um, but I think, you know, I also purposely go out and don't bring music often just to listen to nature and the sounds mm-hmm. of water and whatnot. So I'm going to say I'd bring a music maker and we'll call it a guitar. Mm. Um things right not people or whatever mm. let's keep people out i'd bring yeah, a, yeah I'd, i think we know your answer i'd bring it yeah because that's cheap. i'd bring a dog can i can i bring a dog sure do animals count yeah. okay i'd bring my guitar and a dog Hmm. Honestly, I'd bring my my mesa, which is my my sacred healing tools. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to think of what else I'd bring. Is like that's really matters to me. Like I love meditation, but like yeah, I don't need my meditation cushion, right? I can All meditate right. anywhere, you know. But yeah, I'd bring my sacred tools, my healing mesa, and a guitar and a dog. Those are good answers. What about you? I'm curious. That's a great question. Um. I don't have a good answer right now. Like books would be good, but like I assume you can't bring, you know, infinite books, I'd right? Probably, so. I'd probably bring like one monster book that I haven't read but have been wanting to read. You know, like, like a maybe, big book monster book or a book maybe, about monsters? A, a large, a oh, large okay. book. So, you know, like the Bhagavad Gita or like okay. Autobiography of a Yogi or one of these books uh-huh. that I'm pretty sure is – or maybe even maybe even like the uh, – the, the, the 1600s version of like the King James Bible mm-hmm. and just something where I could really yeah. get a lot from it on many different layers. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, 
I don't know. I got to come back to that because I'm I'm taking too long. I was think thinking of. the same as far as a book goes. Like I might bring like the Upanishads. Yeah, yeah. Something. I might bring the Upanishads or something. Some some mystical text. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or even like the Quran or something. Sure. But um, dude, this has been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. I had, Thanks for I had having me. A lot me. of fun. This has been a great conversation. I didn't. Very I didn't know what kind of questions you'd have. I didn't. I. I expected something very different. To be honest, I didn't know. I thought you'd like pick a topic. I thought we were going to be talking about like coronavirus the whole time or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this was great. Thank you. I had fun. Where Where can people find out what you're up to and stay in the loop with cool stuff you're working on? Yeah. So definitely the number one place is at the Wave and the Ocean on Instagram. And um, also building out an email uh, community right now um, for various reasons. So that'll be coming soon. And people can find that through Instagram as well. They're able to actually subscribe to that already if they go to my Instagram bio and they click the uh, free meditation guide. You get a free meditation guide and um, it'll plug you into my my email newsletter. If you want to be a part of it, you'll be asked. And um as well as if you're interested in learning a little bit more about me and my journey, what I'm up to right now, or the, the healing offerings that I do, uh, waveandocean.com has all that information. Well, thank you, brother. Thanks, Love man. you. Hey guys, Anthony here, and I just wanted to give you a big biohack thank you for listening. I'm so humbled and grateful that you're spending some of your day with me and the Biohacking Secrets Show. And if you get any value from this episode, or you've gotten value from previous episodes, it would mean the world if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this episode with your friends, family members, and coworkers on social media. That way we can continue to spread this information and positively impact as many lives as possible. And it's also how our podcast gets discovered by more people. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show. Mm-hmm.